It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 362. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, a view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, confidently at the controls. Today's show is recorded on the 13th of February, Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. Thank you, Radio Roger, for the nice intro. And uh, it's where we come each week to discuss aviation news and answer your feedback. And joining me to help with that from her mobile studio in Salt Lake City at the Wasatch Brewing Company, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Sorry about that. I've actually wiped my potato instead of unmuting myself. That's uh, the problem with the mobile studio here. It's not quite the same control, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad to have you and can't wait to hear about your adventure there in Salt Lake City. And also joining us from his his mobile studio in New York City. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, England. It is Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, everybody. You know, I've flown 3,000 miles to be with you tonight, so I hope you appreciate it. We do. We always appreciate it when you are able to to join us. And last but not least... Joining us from a stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia. Barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. Captain Dana! Yay, I made it! In time. It's been an adventure. Looking forward to another fun episode of APG. So am I. All right. Good to see everyone. Okay, we're going to go right to... Dr. Steph, because uh, she has a, a short period of time that she can be with us here on the show. Because, well, I don't know why. Well, I'll probably just um, tell you what I'm up to, and then I'm probably going to say my farewells um, here very soon because we're doing a meetup here in Salt Lake City tonight. And um, I know there's at least a couple of folks who said they were going to be here. Um, one definitely for sure. Two is another probably for sure with a couple of other friends. So. Um, kind of doing that, you know, wait and see who, who shows up and hopefully we have a table big enough for everyone. And, um, yeah, I'm here in Salt Lake City. I just got here earlier in the, actually late morning, a pretty early flight, 7 a, 7.30 a.m. out of Charlotte. 
got here about 10, 15 or so in the morning. And actually, since then, I've been spending the day with my one of my brothers. Um, they live here in Salt Lake City. So we uh, went out to lunch, um, had some Cafe Rio, so some Tex-Mex type food. And then we decided to go for a quick five-mile run. And the weather is not the greatest today here in Salt Lake. It's kind of uh, chilly and raining and windy. Um, so, but it looks like it's skiing up, or it looks like it's snowing up in the mountains. So the skiing should be excellent, which is what I plan on doing the rest of the week. In addition to the conference that I'm actually here for. And yes, there is a real conference. There is actually <laughs> lectures that will be taking place from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. and 4 to 7. Is it like the conference that you went to, that medical conference in Miami um, in January of uh, 2017, <laughs> There will actually be more more doctors at this one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because there wasn't <laughs> one. You lied. <laughs> no, I, I, I did. I made that one up. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, though. But I completely There's believed it because you're always going to these conferences. Uh, right. See, it's the one time you're not expecting it that it'll be a... Uh, Well, we all hope, Steph, that you're able to uh, do a recording with your phone. You know, I just thought of it. I need to get you some uh, mobile recording equipment. So when you go on these uh, meetups, you can do that for myself, too. Um, Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I don't have um, headphones that actually attach to my phone. So Mm -hmm. um, I didn't bring anything extra with me because obviously all of my luggage was occupied by skiing gear and conferencing gear and um yeah, I like to travel light, but ended up even checking a bag this time around just because of the weather forecast and like to have enough warm clothes for a couple of days. So, yeah, the, uh, the laptop and the microphone did not make it into the luggage. But that phone but, makes great uh, meetup recordings. Yeah, yeah sort of. Well, we'll see how that not goes. great, but it's not bad. Not great. It'll be fun. It makes, you can listen to them. Yeah. There's audio that gets recorded. Yes, so, that's true. That's true. But yeah, I'm, so I'm here at the Wasatch Brew uh, Pub. Um, it's in Salt Lake City, a little neighborhood called Sugar House, and enjoying a Snowbird Session IPA, uh, which is a nice uh, low alcohol content um, IPA, and very tasty, I might add. So, cheers. Cheers. I am cheers. not drinking a Snowbird Session IPA. I'm drinking... No, it looks like wine. It is wine, yes. Or a very red... It is a uh, Sterling Brewing Company Vintners Collection Cabernet Sauvignon. It's Jeff whining again. Yeah. He is. He, he needs some cheese to go along with that wine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All but anyway, right. I'll, I'll hang out for, for a few minutes. Okay. Because I'm just waiting to see who shows up here. When people show up, I have to move to a different table anyway, so I will probably say goodbye at that point. Okay. Oh, could I just step in, Steph, uh, and remind you, uh, you promised a very intriguing Patreon. Oh, I know, uh, and I haven't done it yet. I'm I ready. know. I can't wait to hear that one myself. I'm thinking of becoming a Patreon just so I can listen to <laughs> so it. Exactly. Still in the works and forthcoming. Uh, yeah. Hey, I recorded one yesterday. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Well, I didn't publish it, though, because I, w- I had my other laptop with me, that, and I didn't have the proper... Uh, dongle stuff to go with it and so i couldn't take the information that i recorded on my nice field recorder and transfer it to my laptop computer so i thought well that was a major fail jeff (laughs) so i'm still going to publish it but it's just going to come out a little bit later and some of the timing that i've talked about in there is not going to really work out but oh well she said 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, Roger is um, Nick. Roger is uh, suggesting a, a venue in uh, in the chat room here. Oh, uh, Brother Jimmy's Barbecue, four sixteen Eighth Avenue. Looks like it's near Thirty Second. Sounds good. I'll make a note of that. Thanks, Roger. Lunch tomorrow. Ooh, that sounds like a good time. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. Okay. Well, let's uh, shift to Captain Nick. I understand that you just flew over the pond today and arrived in New York City. Yeah, it was a very big pond today, mainly because of stonking headwinds um, coming over. So it was uh, nigh on eight hours to get over, which uh, a little longer than we would have loved. But uh, there you go. But my last trip was Boston, and I had a little meetup in Boston, and um, I met um, the very lovely Doug Steinfeld, uh, who... Uh, we went out to a nice restaurant. Now, we did open it up, but uh, no one else was around. So we just sat and had a lovely evening uh, chatting. And uh, um, Doug, thank you very much indeed for picking up the check. That was unexpected, particularly since I was quaffing beer as fast as I could. <laughs> like it was going out of fashion. Doug, um, yeah, you'll you'll know better next time. Exactly. And, he drinks and Doug a lot. Just, <laughs> he abstemiously just had the one beer. Um, but uh, we were hoping his brother would make it, but he couldn't this time because uh, uh, Doug's brother introduced him to our show. And uh, his brother, I think, is uh, something like a, uh, a, a studies or uh, is a professor in geopolitics. I think that's right. Uh, in I guess it's MIT. That's the biggest university there, but I'm not certain. Anyway, uh, I do hope the next time I'm in Boston, uh, I get to meet both of you. Now, uh, uh, Doug had an interesting story because uh, his father, who's well into his 90s, suddenly decided to take up scuba diving. And uh, uh, Dana will like this because, uh, you know, he's uh, he's down there. They've all gone on a big family holiday to Mexico so that his father can earn his uh, open water qualification. And uh, he's probably 92, 94, something like that. I was just amazed. Uh, A very fit and and great family. They all dive there. They're all going down for a great holiday. So hope you're having a good time, Uh, Doug, and thanks very much for the meetup. Uh, This flight out was uh, a bit of a nightmare. We were looking at some really bad turbulence. Uh, Luckily, most of it, didn't occur until we ended up in uh, uh, the United States. And then, you know, around, actually, it was more like Montreal. So I guess it was still Canada. Hit some really rough stuff and had to pop down to uh, uh, the sort of height you guys fly around at, you know, somewhere where you can see the ground, uh, Jeff, and uh, um, to get into clear air. But it was okay. And then coming into uh, New York, it really did get rough in the descent. We, uh, we were being thrown about left, right, and center. I, I love the way the controller said, uh, descend to uh, uh, flight level 190, and you'll get some moderate turbulence. Um, so we thought, well, why are you putting us down to the height where there's the moderate turbulence? Couldn't you just leave us a little higher? And then when we got there, we said, yeah, yeah we, we're in the moderate turbulence now. When can we descend lower? And he said, oh, I'll let you know. <laughs> he just kind of left us there. <laughs> no problem, right? No, no problem at all. 
anyway, we eventually got down, uh, and we swooped round uh, uh, to expecting an ILS to one, sorry, three one right, and it had been uh, very lumpy, uh, it, it really quite rough. And then all of a sudden they said, oh, uh, uh, Acme Red, could you take a visual onto 3-1 left? And uh, I said, yes, uh, we could do that. Uh, we were just about to hit the localizer for the other runway. Anyway, we swung across for a visual. My wonderful first officer was busily typing in the box, changing all the gear over to set me up uh, with some ILS indications and put the correct runway in and get all the data in. And just as he finished it, they said, oh, cancel that. <laughs> cancel that, Acme Red. You're back on the ILS for three run right. Would you mind <laughs> joining the localizer? And I'm going, oh, for heaven's sake. So, you know, we just did runway swap, runway swap, runway swap. And uh, then she uh, put it on the ground and thought, oh, thank the Lord for that. So anyway, uh, eventful, typical New York, uh, but we got on the ground, so we're happy. Got to be flexible. That's the key to air power. So I gather. Yep. Flexibility. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's what I, I, Now I have about. a question for you, Nick. Do you have the option of having a, a second route page preloaded to have something like that? selected so Ye like yes exactly we do but it takes just as many button presses to bring that page up and activate it as it does to just swap the runway on the current one so okay. it, it's up to the whoever's working the box it's up to him which technique he uses i don't really care so long as i get an, an ils on and we can always hard tune the ils if needs be but you know it was literally uh Three one right, three one left, three one right in about forty five seconds. So we were, you know, just working like one on paper hangers for a, a little while, um, just to get the plates up in time, you know, and rebrief. And we just yeah. started rebriefing, getting everything sorted, and then we switched back again. I'm going, oh, Lord. Anyway, I think that uh, my personal opinion um, at that point, who cares what's in the box anymore? Um, just you know, dial in the localizer and get the right. Uh, course and make sure you have the minimum set properly and just you know fly it that Sadly, way. that that's all in the box for us so no you, you have know, to you yeah. have to do it that way then well the minimums and, go in the box the oh so our, our airplane yeah. it doesn't it just you know paints a nice little picture of a, on your map thing and you know i have a lot of guys who go well you want me to put that back in the I, no i don't care i'm not looking at that i'm looking no, you know at no, the, i i would have we could have probably uh, i could actually see there for reasonably well there was some light snow showers around but uh no, it wasn't wasn't a big problem um so yeah that was me today oh and by the way nice shout out for ian arnell one of our lovely uh engineers uh i was flying the same aircraft that i had landed from boston in with a whole bunch of snags and ian met me at the aircraft now he's an old friend of mine and uh, uh we go back he's a really good uh engineer who knows uh the airplane backwards and I, I gave him this list of snags that i had whinging about them anyway i bumped into him today he didn't see me off sadly but i bumped into him and the airplane that uh, i took was the same one and everything had been fixed i was really impressed oh so nice yes very nice thank you Ian. all right dana hi how have you been sir well you know i've been working just made it back to the house in time for our wonderful show this evening and it looks like uh i well it doesn't look like i just finished a four-day trip feels like it was a three-day three-day trip because i had a long 
sit in Buffalo, New York, about 29 and a half hours. The first day went pretty good, except for I do have to say one thing. There's a Midwest airport, certain Midwest airport, that we have our friend Jennifer works at this Midwest airport. And fortunately, they don't run, or unfortunately, they don't run our de-icing because here at Acme, at uh, this Midwest airport, we have our own de-icing crew. It took them 40 minutes to de-ice my airplane. It was absurdly long. In comparison to today, in Cleveland, uh, the de-ice crew took about eight minutes to do type one and type two. Done. Out the door, you know, already to the runway. They're and one of the best. Yeah. yeah, they are very, very good. So just a little comparison, although I'm not giving the shout out to Jennifer's Midwest Airport. However, uh, because we do our own, our own de-icing, uh, I get to watch them work over there and they do a pretty good job too. I wish it was actually them doing our de-icing up there in that Midwest Airport. But uh, anyways... Uh, you know, one of the hardest parts of our job, as far as I'm concerned, is sleeping in a different room, in a different hotel, in a different bed every night. And uh, that was no exception. Now, the first day of my trip was pretty uneventful, other than the Columbus de-ice issue uh, taking forever. But the uh, second day after Buffalo, well, was sleeping in Buffalo, because at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I hear beep, beep, beep. <laughs> Beep, beep, beep. So what that was is that there was construction equipment outside my window doing the air construction at 2 o'clock in the morning with something keep on backing up and something, I don't know whether they were lifting out snow. Well, it really wasn't that much snow to remove, but that was going on at 2 o'clock in the morning woke me up, and I never went back to sleep. However, I had already had a good night's sleep at that point because I went to bed pretty early. I knew I had to get up early, so I just stayed up and actually had a full-leg day that next day. Um, that day, the uh, was fine until we went to go to Savannah, and there was a major front that came through the southeastern United States. With uh, It was quite impressive. Uh, it caused a lot of problems throughout the northeast and central plains with a lot of snow and ice. Um, and this, it just gave us the bottom of the comma. You know, if you look at a big storm, it has a nice ending to it. It was a, a nice gust front that came through and stopped the traffic uh, in Atlanta. 35-minute flight took us almost two hours to complete. We could have almost driven there quicker. Not quite, but it was 35-minute flight, and it, it took us about an hour and 10 minutes to get off the ground uh, after that uh, a very heavy rain came through with the heavy, heavy winds. So today was a very challenging day. Showed up at the airport. Um, it was actually banker's hours. Didn't have to be at the airport until uh, 7.30 this morning. So that's banker's hours as far as we're concerned. Mm -hmm. So show up at the airport and we're already delayed 10 minutes. I'm like, why are we delayed? Well, figures the flight attendants were delayed coming in. They only had nine hours on the ground, so they had to delay us. Flight attendants did a great job of turning us around. Um, and we went on our merry way to Atlanta. Of course, what always happens on the last round trip, as we say, it's a penalty lap. Always something has to happen because you can never be on time. And for the most part, I mean, that's my, my luck, Jeff. I mean, I'm always at the last gate in the concourse. I always get the worst airplane. Well, today was no exception. Today was a very complex TRP issue, thrust rating panel issue. It was written up as being inoperative, so we have to, had to go through and calculate uh, 
all of our um, thrust settings. So for our takeoff, our um, climb, our cruise, our descent, and um, missed approach, all of those um, thrust settings had to be set manually. Well, that's not necessarily a, a, a tough issue as far as that goes. However, we have the uh, we pull out the carrot, which we can manually set the thrust value that we're shooting for. And I pulled out the carrot on the left engine, and it kept on jumping from about 1.58 to about 2.0 and back and forth. Every time I was trying to set 1.91 EPR uh, on on the value, uh, it kept on jumping around. So we had to uh, open the aircraft door back up, had to have maintenance come out. I had played with the, uh, with the, um, <clears throat> the knob. I guess it's the best word for it. And I think what what uh, had uh, what had happened, it just doesn't get used that often. The manual setting, so I worked it out, you know, working back and forth, back and forth, and pulled it out, put it in, pulled it out, put it in, and finally was able to get it to the point that it was actually able to uh, set itself and stay set. So we got that resolved. Flew up to uh, Cleveland about thirty minutes late. Made up made up some time. And thank you to those DA's folks in Cleveland because that helped us out making up uh, far more time. But landing in Cleveland, um, winds were uh, thrown away 2.6 in Cleveland. The winds were 2.50, 26 gusting to 34. Made for a very interesting approach in the Cleveland. Um, very, very windy. So anyways, that's how my day was. Got back to Atlanta about a half an hour late. And, of course, what do we get? Nice visual approach into Atlanta. Finally, the weather cleared out of here, and that's a very nice ending to a beautiful day. We could see all of the Appalachian Mountains up into North Carolina. The visibility was so nice today after that front came through. So Yeah, beautiful day in the south. And one other thing, Nick, you flew how many hours today? Uh, I don't know. Uh, eight, eight hours and eight and a half. Nine, nine by the time we finished, I guess. Okay, I did three legs. I did 41 minutes first leg, one hour and 14 minutes the next leg, and one hour and 18 minutes that next leg. So I didn't work very hard, compar- comparatively speaking, to all the hours you were in that. I think my flight was even longer than that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that was what, two hours and uh, just about uh, two hours, just about under three hours total work. So anyways, that's about it. The Old Pink House in my favorite restaurant in Savannah. I don't know if anybody goes there, but the Old Pink House had a fire. I was very disappointed last night. I didn't get my old pink house for dinner. So that was my big disappointment on my trip. I enjoy the old pink eye, but uh, uh, yeah, not the same thing, really. Pretty close. And, and we have a view of the entire valley. We do. We have a view of the entire valley, according to one of the folks that are at the uh, Salt Lake City meetup at Wasatch Brewing Company. Yes, Steph, go ahead. You're on. If you've never been to Salt Lake City, it is beautiful. So I know Jeff's there. I know... I've been to that that exact brewery. My buddy and I, Jay, I'm not going to use his name. Uh, When we were building time, he was part of a flight club that is right underneath the Salt Lake T. uh, uh, um, I'm forgetting the technical term now. Well, yeah, right under the, uh, right under the. Airspace, uh, class Bravo now. It it used to be with the T-Sir. TSA, I can't remember what it was. Way back. So, anyways, class problem. TCA. TCA, Terminal Control Area. Um, 
So anyways, uh, we would uh, take a couple of airplanes out of there and fly them all the way across country. But I've been to that exact brewery that you're at right now. Um, yes, loved it. Is, it. Is one of my and favorites. that's back Definitely. in the late 90s. So, I'm going to take this moment to say goodbye because several folks have shown up and we're going to get to know one another a little bit and talk about some aviation stuff. Hi, hi, several folks. Hello, everybody. All right. Have fun. Can't wait to hear about it. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Cheers, Jeff. Bye. Have fun. All right. Yeah, she was trying to get in to uh, say goodbye so she could move on with more important things. Like drinking. <laughs> and uh, the meetup planned there. That's awesome. Okay. Um, let's see. So that leaves me, right? My turn? All right. So after last week's uh, show, the next day, scheduled to do uh, just three legs, uh, Cleveland to Atlanta, Atlanta, Milwaukee, and then back to Atlanta for the penalty lap. And I'll talk a little bit more in depth about it in my crew log, which should have been published, but it's going to be published tomorrow or tonight. But uh, had a an air return uh, because we flew from... Atlanta to Milwaukee and had an issue with our weather radar and we had unfortunately some convective weather in route that we had to have a functioning radar and uh, so we had to turn around go back to Atlanta they fixed it and then we tried it a second time and made it up to Milwaukee and then back on the way back I ended up uh, talking to actually it was I was flying my first officer was talking to a Chicago center and a gentleman says the guy that was working us hey is this captain jeff and i'm thinking well obviously he he doesn't think that my first officer's voice is me but he must know that i'm operating that flight today and i said yeah and of course my first officer was going huh <laughs> what what's happening here uh but um talk to uh let me see here we go want to make sure i get all this right joe uh, from Chicago Center. And so we talked a little bit and he helped us uh, out a little bit, gave us a little, little bit of a shortcut to decrease the amount of time our leg was going to take back to Atlanta because we were flying a little bit longer route to kind of go on the backside of that weather system. And he said, uh, nice chatting with you on the way out of uh, Milwaukee. And he said, I'm glad that he could help me or us out uh, with the shortcut. And he also mentioned to uh, to us on the, uh, I think he's extending this uh, offer, this invitation to the APG crew uh, to come in for a tour of Chicago Center. And because he knows that we're going to be up there in Oshkosh, so in that area. And I said, yeah, in fact, the uh, RV that we're renting is in the Chicago area. So we might be able to coordinate for some kind of a special tour uh, of the uh, Chicago Center in Aurora. That so. sounds that sounds great. Isn't it nice to have nice air traffic controllers? Yes, know? it is. You know, uh, I was leaving for Boston on my, not this trip, previous one, and it just so happened one of our great APG friends, Adam Spink, was on ground, which is why I was held five minutes on my gate <laughs> before I could taxi. Just five and, minutes? Yeah. And uh, then, oh, and it, on the on the landing back, um, Adam was on uh, 
uh, he was on approach tower and uh, Graham, uh, who we also know, was uh, on ground. Wasn't that brilliant? So I spoke to them both. Conspiring uh, against you again, I'm sure. Well, they couldn't do much to spoil me, spoil my day, <laughs> but uh, they tried, obviously. Yeah. Well, in the uh, email that Joe sent me, uh, he included a snapshot of a um, the strip because they use, still use those paper strips for flight following and such. So it's kind of cool to see our flight and the information and the route routing and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of cool. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thanks Joe for doing that. And, uh, we definitely will be contacting you and trying to, uh, he said, make sure you do it though before October because he's retiring after what do you say? 33 years, I think. What a sensible wow. chap. Yes. So, yeah. um, looking forward to meeting you in person, Joe and getting, I said almost 33 years. Okay. Yeah, so looking forward to getting together and uh, seeing the facility up there. That sounds like a lot of fun. Hey, Nick, I only have 6,035 days is, to is, is that all that? That's not many at all. No. no. Just, uh, just counting. Yeah, I know. I don't, I'm not counting at all. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I haven't a clue how many days I've got. Nick is holding Sorry. up his, uh, his, his phone again, <laughs> and it says 107 days. Yes, would and, you believe? Well, and, and I'm going to hold up mine, and mine's only 1,775 days. Oh, knock a digit off. We'd be very close. <laughs> yeah, anyway. at least I'm under 200 months. I'm 190. Oh, there you go. To go. Oh, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh yeah, forever, forever, Nick. I will always think of you every time I look at that. <laughs> but I only have seventeen, seventeen days to Hawaii. So oh, awesome. Okay, um, on this trip that I just came back from today, I well had a couple of meetups. Um, one kind of a personal meetup. I know Dana, you and I both got to meet up with Stephen Ivy. Uh, you yes. while you were making transiting. Happy birthday Atlanta. to Stephen. Yeah, he had Happy a birthday, birthday on Monday. To Stephen. Happy birthday, dear Stephen. Happy birthday, Happy birthday to you. To you. All right. And many more. Um, so uh, that was cool. And let's see, yesterday and day before yesterday, what day was it? It was Monday, the first day of my three-day trip. I had a meetup with Logan Lynch and his lovely wife in Melbourne. Uh, that's uh, in Florida, not the one down in uh, Australia. And uh, Doesn't it look like that picture I sent you then? Uh, it looked, uh, well, there's water there and, and a couple of buildings, but not as many as okay. in the picture that you sent. But, yeah, but it's still a very lovely place. And so I'm going to tap this button here and hope that we can hear the meetup audio that I recorded. Hey folks, we're at the Hilton Rialto, I think it's called, uh, Melbourne Airport, and uh, a little mini meetup, and let's see, I'm going to start with my FO, Jason. Uh, he uh, is now learning all about the, uh, the whole APG thing and the podcast and everything else, and I invited him to join me at this little mini meetup here at the Melbourne Hilton Airport. And uh, what do you think? Uh, well, uh, Jeff, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And uh, this is actually one of the first uh, meetings that I have never heard of the show before, but I really appreciate it. I, th I really appreciate everything you're doing for the aviation community with this show. And uh, I'll, uh, you know, promote anything you need 
from a standpoint for me, if you ever need anything, if you ever need me to uh, say anything about the show, just let me know. Awesome. Uh, no, we've only flown one leg. It was, it's a great trip. It's uh, one leg today. We flew from Atlanta to here, and we got in early this morning uh, before noon. And so, you know, we still have another couple of days. Uh, he may change his tune after he's flown with me a little bit longer. We'll see. And uh, we have uh, Lima Sierra Lima over here. His uh, name, his actual name is Logan Lynch. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Um, just so happened to be down here in Florida, same time as Captain Jeff. So um, down here from, what, the tundra of North Dakota right now. Frozen tundra, yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, I think when I left North Dakota, it was a high of negative 11 and snowing, and I think it's snowing again there right now, so quite quite the uh, change down here, so really excited. Uh, but I've been listening to the show now since, what, July now, I think is when I started listening, so it's been great to finally meet uh, with Captain Jeff, so anyways, there you go. Would, you, would his better half, no, she's looking at me, she's, she's shaking her head, no. I know that look, I've seen it so many times in my life, so I am not going to hand the microphone to her. So, um, anyway, it, we were having some great conversation here, talking about uh, possibilities in the future, and other things like families and all the things that are important in all our lives. So, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm, thank you, Logan, for reaching out and seeing that I was going to be down here and uh, kind of basically initiating this meetup. It was, uh, it was great. All right, back to you in the studio, crew. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. On-scene reporter at uh, Melbourne International Airport in Florida. Um, so, that's a good reason to become part of our Slack team and follow the, or uh, sign up for the meetups channel and also to Look at our APG community calendar because we're putting our schedules on there and you can kind of see where we are and if we are uh, available to do a meetup. And that's what Logan did. And he noticed that I was going to be in Melbourne. And that's how that whole thing ended up uh, happening. And Jason, did you did you recognize, Dana, that uh, that voice? Cause that's yes, I did. Somebody that uh, knows you from your previous life at uh, ASA. Sure did. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. Really good guy. Had a lot of great things to say about you as well. So, <laughs> no, really, seriously. No, he's a good guy. And uh, is, we he, had a lot of fun flying together. Yeah, he, I can imagine. I'd love to be able to do that sometime and, and have him as my first officer, or even me as his first officer in the future, and him as captain. So, either yeah. way. Better hurry, because I think he's uh, looking at possibly moving to some other of course, I know that you might be as well uh, in the not-so-distant future. And, and not willingly, but it may happen. Yeah. So, um, anyway, um, Jason is um, what what we'd call a, I guess, a management pilot. Um, he works in the uh, ACME chief pilot office. He's an assistant chief pilot. And so I, I know it's really happening there. They're, they sent him to uh, make sure that... They heard a lot of stories about me, probably, and they had to make sure that, you know, quality control, make sure that I was uh, okay. So, was that something that was making noise over here on my end? No, that was okay. me. I'm sorry. I recycled oh, right. my, my, I noticed that my computer was about to 
Uh-oh. go off because the charger for some reason was not plugged in properly. Oh, I'm glad you did. caught that before it died. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> I, that's uh, happened to me before. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I'm glad it happened to look in that little corner, the little icon up there. Um, and I did not expect it to make that noise. So I no, but that's that. fine. I'm glad it made that noise because that means that you're going to be going to be with us. I, I think I was in the middle of a show once, I don't know when, sometime last year. I don't remember seeing the little window that usually comes up and says you're operating on very low battery power you know make sure you do this or whatever before it disappears and it, i don't think it happened it just everything just completely went black not good yeah well looks like my camera's now failed oh okay well it might come Oy. back maybe uh maybe unplugging and replugging might might help or just giving it some time to recover anyway uh let's see what else do i have here so we've had the uh, melbourne meetup audio uh will cool captain cool uh sent us some audio feedback regarding something happening up in his neck of the woods and so will please take it away hi everyone will cool here most of us are familiar with the wasps or at least have heard of them the women air force service pilots back in world war ii who were trained to Uh, help fill the gap for uh, male pilots that were sent overseas for combat. So they flew a lot of ferry missions and uh, some cargo missions and also a lot of test flights. And amazingly, they also were live targets where they towed banners that people shot at to practice their uh, anti-aircraft skills. And sometimes they were mistakenly shot at themselves. Anyway, um, there is a long and interesting history that I won't Uh, spend a lot of time talking about because I don't think that I personally would be able to do it justice. But there's um, an event going on at Arlington National Cemetery by Erin Miller, who is the granddaughter of one of the wasps, uh, Elaine Harmon. And Elaine had wanted to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery, but because of the rules at the time, she was not allowed to. And so there's an interesting history with that. Anyway, Aaron Miller was a champion for uh, lobbying for legislation that would change that. And she was successful and she's written a book about it. So she's having an event and it's going to be on um, Saturday, March 2nd from 9.30 to 11 o'clock a.m. And I just wanted to tell everybody about it. The event is free, but you do need tickets. And you can RSVP on uh, the website, www.wai-crc.com. And that's the website of the Women in Aviation Capital Region chapter. And I will definitely be there and looking forward to seeing anybody else that can attend. Thank you. So if you're in the area, Sounds like a great thing to attend. And uh, the information will be in the show notes. And again, it's Saturday, March 2nd. So it's pretty soon. Sounds like a great piece of history, too. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Good job. Unfortunately, I will not be able to attend that. I'm going to be getting ready. Getting ready. It's always good to get ready. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. Let's see. Um, I have some other notes here. Oh, hey, Tiffany is the APG librarian. She 
resides in the Buffalo, New York area, and she's a wonderful person. And she was telling me that she gets jealous hearing about all these APG meetups that we have everywhere. And she's attending a conference in Columbus, Ohio, uh, this weekend. And she's been trying to coordinate a meetup there. And looks like the latest information, because we talked about it last week, uh, the latest information that I see on the Slack page is, I believe it's Saturday, the 16th of February, from 5.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Marcella's, uh, 615 North High Street in Columbus, Ohio. And I believe that James Balch will be there. Uh, Pip, unfortunately, I think he's leaving on Friday, so he's going to be out of town. Uh, Jen is out of town. And so a lot of our uh, Columbus stalwarts, APGers, uh, are, are out of town. So if you're listening right now, and I don't know, you may not hear this by, in time, but I hope that uh, we get a good turnout for Tiffany because she deserves to have a great time at an APG meetup and, and see how, how great our APG community is. So if you're in the Columbus area, please head over to Marcella's or Marcella's um, on High Street. You have now, your... if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I think James and I went there. Oh, okay. That could fantastic. Be. I think it I think, was the same place. I think James is the one that's uh, coordinating this, so it's very likely that that is the the same place. Yeah, it was very good. I mean, I remember exactly where it is in Short North, but can't quite remember the name of it. But if, if it's the same place, it's very well worth going. Okay. The food is very good. Excellent. Okay, here in Atlanta. Uh, at the Delta Flight Museum, a an event called Hops in the Hangar, which is the uh, Saturday, February 23rd, so a week from this Saturday. Uh, many of us are going to be there, including myself, and just wanted to let you know, Stephen Ivey is going to be there as well, uh, Tom uh, Dugan, and others. And if you're interested in going, I believe that Tom might have some tickets available. He bought a couple of extra first-class tickets and uh, I may have a an economy class ticket for sale if you want to snap that up. But I uh, tickets are out there, so contact me uh, at my personal email, Jeff at e- uh, airlinepilotguy.com, if you're interested, and we'll see what we can work out. Because I believe that all the tickets are now sold out. But uh, we're planning on having a, a really good time in uh, or at the Atlanta airport on Saturday the 23rd. Let's see. Again, just a reminder, Slack. Join the Slack team. Hillel will tell us about that at the end of the show. Also, you can look at our APG community calendar on the website, airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar, and you can learn about all these great events that we have, seems like, every week. All right. Let's, um, I think that's all I had, which was a lot, in the intro section. Anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? No, sir. I'm ready, sir. Okay. Let's do it right now. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the job and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. 
the coffee fund that's the java jive sung by the famous jeff smith and the reason why we're playing it is because the coffee fund is what we call the way that you can become involved financially uh supporting the show and a couple of different ways to do that one is the classic method which is uh, basically a paypal donation page and you can do a one-time donation or a recurring donation there and the other way to do it is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show and pledge a certain amount per episode. And all that information is available on airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, we had a couple of people join us contributing via the Classic Fund. Joel Solomons and Jeff and Anissa Moeller. So, and again, a reminder, if you are one of those who use the Classic Fund and haven't gotten the information about the crew log feed, please contact me at jeff at airlinepilotguide.com. I'll make sure that you have that information. So anyway, thanks everybody for contributing to the show. We do appreciate it. And we look forward to having more people join us. Stand by for news. All right, we'll start with uh, an update on a story that we talked about in the previous episode. The Actually, the last two episodes, I believe. The uh, Piper Malibu that crashed in the English Channel. Uh, they did say that a body was recovered from the wreckage of the crashed plane, and they confirmed it is indeed the Cardiff City player Emiliano Salah. So, um, again, another sad story. And the... Air Accidents Investigation Branch is taking over the investigation and hope to find exactly what occurred there with that tragic accident. And Nick wants to say something because I can hear the sirens in the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I oh. just I just happened to have unmuted in case. Oh, okay. But there's not a lot more to be said, really, Jeff. Uh, you know, they haven't found the pilot yet. Uh, he's not in the aircraft. They had been able to spot him through the remote uh, cameras they sent down. So uh, uh, he, he's, uh, he may turn up. Uh, one presumes he uh, was killed also. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, absolutely tragic. Uh, I feel sorry for the football club, and uh, I feel dreadful for uh, this player's family. Um, and, uh, you know, I just hope this doesn't turn out to be uh, a bit of a, um, a dodgy, um, flight that was organized, uh, you know, uh, illegally, illegally, perhaps or when it mm-hmm. shouldn't have done, or, or perhaps it's someone who was not uh, particularly well qualified in an aircraft that wasn't really fit. It would just be so tragic if mm-hmm. uh, this, this fine young sportsman had died of result of, of negligence. Yeah. I hope that's not the case. Yeah. Likewise. But we'll certainly cover whatever the investigation reveals on our show one way or the other. Um, Second item here, uh, Qantas. Uh, I guess they had an order for uh, an additional eight Airbus A380s because I know they operate 
I'm not sure how many in their fleet already, but uh, I guess they have 12 right now. And I guess they had eight on order, but they notified Airbus that they were canceling that order. I think they're converting them to A350s instead. And that is just contributing to the woes of the uh, the super jumbo uh, order book. And uh, Airbus, um, I think I just read something in today's news somewhere that they're thinking that it's possible that Airbus may actually announce tomorrow or as soon as tomorrow that they're ending the production line of the uh, A380. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you know, there, there are very few customers for it right now. And uh, despite the fact that it's proven to be a very popular airplane uh, and her passengers uh, really do enjoy being on aircraft of that size, its stability, the amount of room uh, and the facilities it has on board, it's just not competing. Uh, it's just too expensive. Uh, you know, four-engine airplanes uh, really don't cut the mustard anymore. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Sad. It is. Not to mention it's the world's ugliest commercial airline. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah, actually, it no, is I pretty think ugly the, uh, the Dreamlifter is definitely oh, the well, world's yeah. ugliest No. Airline. Well, yeah. that's not a passenger airliner. Yeah, no, but you, you know what? Okay, so that's fair. That's fair. Uh, okay. But All let's, right. Let's talk about the beluga. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh no, that looks cute. Oh, that <laughs> looks really cute. I okay. mean, it looks like a. That's what your parents said about you when you were born. <laughs> well, yeah, possibly. <laughs> that was the beginning of birth control when he was born. <laughs> oh, 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 ow. if, oh, ouch! Yeah, Burn. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Uh, too late now, <laughs> mate. You said it. That's it. It's gone. <laughs> I'm just getting my little black book out. <laughs> Okay, that's we should move on then. Um, <laughs> this this is an interesting one. You don't hear these kind of stories very often. A Visalia, California man has been arrested for attempted murder after he tried to shoot down a plane, according to the <laughs> Tulare County Sheriff's Office. On February second, officers received a report from a local agriculture aviation spraying business, in other words, uh, crop dusters, that one of its planes had been struck by a bullet while in flight. Upon further investigation, detectives identified 55-year-old Roy Vanderveld as the suspect after witnesses confirmed he made threats to shoot down the plane. And uh, so they booked him into uh, the pre-trial facility at the county sheriff's office. And according to arrest records, Veld has been charged with attempted homicide, a special allegation of negligent discharge of a firearm, and shooting at an occupied aircraft. So... Apparently, there must be more to this story. Uh, there must have been some kind of a feud going on. I could just see it. It's probably somebody that's near some property where this crop dusting guys or gal is, is, is spraying stuff, and he's not happy about it, and he probably warned them, yeah, you know, you, you fly near here again, and you're gonna, I'm going to shoot at you. I'm going to shoot you down. And they, they probably purposely got really close to his property, and he shot at him. But I don't know. I'm making all this up. I don't know. It just sounds like a good story to me. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking that, you know, they, they're not very big airplanes. And if mm -hmm. he actually hit them, that means he shot. probably got within like 10 feet of yeah. the pilot. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty damn close. Okay. I could just see that crop dusting pilot going, oh, yeah? You don't want me to be near your property? <laughs> Take this. <laughs> Son yeah. of a gun. I'm going to shoot you down. <laughs> Hells, hells, Those well. guys are used to flying really close to the ground, so they probably yeah. could give him a nice haircut. Too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay. 
We'll probably not not hear anything more about this case, but I just thought it was kind of funny, so I thought I'd throw I it in the news brilliant. folder. Hey, this is uh, useful information, I think. Uh, item D. Uh, Curtis Wright and Honeywell use connectivity to reinvent the airplane black box recorders. Of course, we all know, listeners to the show and other aviation podcasts, that they're really not black boxes, but that's what everybody calls them. Um, in a major boost for airline accident investigations, two aviation leaders, Curtis Wright Corporation and Honeywell, have partnered to develop an entirely new way for airlines to monitor and analyze flight data. The companies will use real-time connectivity to reinvent the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, commonly referred to as black boxes, for the commercial airline cargo transport and business jet markets. The company signed an agreement to develop the next generation of mandate-compliant voice and data recorders. As part of the new agreement, Curtis Wright will be the exclusive supplier for Honeywell's next-generation recorders for the air transport and business aviation market. The companies will jointly develop the hardware for new black boxes, and Honeywell will modernize the software capabilities for easier access to real-time data during flight. And that's what I think the big story here. This is going to be um, live, real-time data streaming and upload to the cloud capabilities enabled by Honeywell's connected aircraft software. And um, that's going to meet, as I said uh, in the earlier paragraph here, that it's meeting the mandate through the, uh, I believe it's the European Aviation Safety Agency minimum 25-hour cockpit voice recording mandate. So, This is so cool, Jeff. We've talked about this before mm -hmm. and suggested several times that, you know, when you get one of these aircraft that disappears and you can't really, you know, you're trying to dive or put submersibles down into thousands of meters of water to try and recover these devices. Uh, and it, it's such an expensive thing to do. Uh, isn't it great when you might be able to have uh, streaming of this? And lo and behold, here we go. I, I just hope that it's uh, adopted soon into uh, the next generation of aircraft and uh, it'll just be a boon for flight safety. Yeah, it, it's really no surprise. And actually, I'm surprised it's taken this long to even go down this avenue. I mean, how long have we been able to a cars back and forth and communicate? And it's uh, it's it's really about time, if you ask me. And I all the new generation idea. aircraft already, um, you know, for for many years now, have the capability of sending a, almost a constant stream of data to the you know like maintenance data, like for instance, the uh, 2009 tragedy of uh, Air France 407. Uh, no, now I'm all of a sudden can't remember the name of the flight. Uh, the one that, that crashed over the Atlantic Ocean. But, the 330, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, and it was, they were getting all kinds of data uh, in headquarters in France um, of what was happening on the airplane. Um, that helped give some clues as to what may have happened until they yeah, actually... Yeah, and of course the engine manufacturers, they take... Uh, engine parameters all the time, uh, independent of the uh, airline, uh, because uh, people like Rolls-Royce and GE, they, they want to know exactly how their engines are performing, and they want to be able to tell the airline uh, if there is a potential problem, when to pull them off the wing, when to service them, etc. So th those have been sending data regularly, uh, and that's one of the things that uh, they've been trying to use to find the Malaysian uh, 777 mm -hmm. that went down. 
And James uh, points out it was 447. Thank you. I was close. I got two of the numbers right. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you, James. But uh, now, if we can just ensure that these devices are connected constantly, no matter where you are in the on the globe, um, that yeah, would be, the, be great. the best thing. And then we wouldn't worry or we wouldn't be worrying about, you know, where the Malaysian flight went down, et cetera. Yeah. The technology's there. Why not use it? Yep. Yep. And I think we're going to see that in, in the next few years. Now, when I say the technology is there, why not use it? That applies to this only. I would not support video cameras in the flight deck. Okay. Well, we're not going to talk about that because I know that's going to be a controversial <laughs> well, thing. They, they will be able to stream your, uh, your voice. So by the time you land, mate, your uh, P-45, I don't know what you call it in the States when you get your letter of uh, dismissal, <laughs> but in the UK, it's called a P-45. We'll just be there waiting for you. Yes, and, and and highlighted all the things that you said that were inflammatory. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. okay. Here we go. Um, yeah, yeah. At this point, if you have these systems, you may, may as well just have the video as well, right? <laughs> it's a complete invasion <laughs> yeah. of our privacy. Well, and, and unless you like to fly naked. Well, I don't no, want to talk about that. that. Airline <laughs> in the United States likes to do that. Okay, moving on. Um. This was an interesting one, um, a ground collision between two Kenya Airways Embraer ERJ-190s at Nairobi Airport. Both aircraft seriously damaged, and we have pictures, which we'll include in our show notes. And they're correct. There is some yeah. serious damage here. <laughs> yeah, there certainly is. I shouldn't be laughing. No. but uh, I'm oh, sure wow. that the people Ouch. that own these airplanes are not laughing about this. No, that, no, no. not the, at all. On they're 9 February... Pissed. Um, two Kenya Airways Embraer ERJ 190s collided while on the ground. Uh, apparently, one of them, five Yankee Kilo Yankee Romeo, jumped off her chocks during a quote ground run. The crew then tried to avoid the aircraft from hitting hangar walls, but the aircraft hit a parked Embraer five Yankee Fox 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 instead. <laughs> I don't know why they thought it would be better to hit the airplane than the. Maybe it didn't look as uh, imposing to them. Uh, so they they store, steered it toward another very high value <laughs> piece of equipment. And yeah, how much is that old rusty hangar worth? <laughs> I know. So I'm just surmising, speculating here, but uh, it says it was chalk that jumped the chalks. But certainly they had the brake set, right? The parking brake must have been set, or maybe somebody actually riding the brakes, you know, putting their feet on the brake pedals, right? Oh. You would think. Huh? No, yeah. I don't think so. If they, if this thing jumped the chocks, that means that they thought the chocks were going to be enough. I, again, this is all speculation, but it seems to me that that may have what been what happened here. They just thought, well, it's chocked. It should be fine. We'll just do an engine run up. Or uh, missed it on their maintenance checklist. That could be as well. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's not the only time. But I mean, this is, uh, I, I hate to say, if you're going to run into another airplane, don't do it to one on your own airline. Do right. it to Take somebody, out somebody else's <laughs> airline. Yeah. I mean, preferably one of your major competitors, because at least you've taken out one of their airplanes. Right. But they, you know, Kenyan, take out a Kenyan, and then today in Schiphol, uh, a KLM 747 <laughs> on pushback took out one of his own KLM um, Dreamliners. I mean, Boeing versus Boeing. I love it personally, but... <laughs> I mean, if you again, if you're going to take out another airplane, make sure it's somebody else. God, 
Yummy. When I knew, will they learn? You know, I saw that news item about the KLM jets, and I'm thinking Nick is going to absolutely love this and have something very, very snarky to say about <laughs> the fact. Well, that was good. Took out two Boeings. <laughs> yeah, the two Boeings with one swipe. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Good job. And also, I believe uh, we were talking about uh, this before we started recording. Not the first time that uh, an airplane has been doing an engine run and has uh, gotten itself into trouble. I believe oh, that's a, right. Yes. An A340. Yes. Uh, uh, we, I think we were saying it was Saudi Air. Yes, Saudi Arabian, I believe it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it had not yet been delivered, and they were doing some kind of an engine run. And uh, I think it was their accept one of their acceptance procedures, I think. Mm. So, oh, good Lord, yes. And actually, that was quite tragic, because uh, the aircraft uh, smashed into this huge concrete wall over the road up. And I think uh, the the flight deck was quite badly damaged, and uh, some of the occupants were you know, quite severely injured. Mm. Not good. No, not good at all. Okay, um, I believe Liz found this item a very positive, encouraging thing. Um, the TSA finds a record number of firearms carried by travelers at airports. <laughs> mm. Many travelers heading to U.S. airports are apparently unaware. That it's illegal to carry a firearm through carry-on baggage security no, really? checkpoints. Yeah. Huh? I, can't, I can't imagine that. What's, that. What's wrong with that? Uh, they announced Thursday that it found 4,239 firearms in carry-on bags last year. What? That's not much. <laughs> so no way. Only equip a small army. The largest number in the agency's history. That's a 7% increase over the 3,957 firearms TSA discovered in 2017. But I bet... The number, the actual number that make it through security is probably much, much higher. This is just the number that they actually found. Oh, um, you have little faith. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think most of the time there's no ill intent, uh, intent uh, you know, involved in this. It's just people just forgetting that they have a loaded firearm, which I find hard to believe in myself, but because I don't carry them around myself, but um Anyway. Well, I was amazed that the number weren't any lo- weren't only loaded, but had a uh, around in the uh, chamber. Yes, as well. I mean, uh, oh my god! <laughs> and the thing is, really encouraging to Dana and I. Uh, the number one coming in, number one, <laughs> the Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International Airport with two hundred and ninety eight firearms, wow. two hundred and fifty three of them loaded. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, Ouch. so. Be careful out there, folks. There's a big fine if you're caught, isn't there? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I think I remember reading it was something like $15,000. Hmm. Oh, $13,333 for each pro- prohibited item violation. And repeat violations result in higher penalties. So hmm. there you go, guys. Well, it says it can impose civil penalties up to that, but I bet they don't. But they don't. Do they confiscate the weapon? I don't know. Do you get it back afterwards? I would imagine they would I, really? confiscate it. I, I don't. Because, you know, when you have a like something that has more than three ounces of liquid in it, do they take it and then you can get it back? No. No. <laughs> they I don't think you get the weapon never back. Never see it again. Sure. Yeah, probably not. Probably not at all. Okay. Well, um, apparently, um, Steph was out there for a run in some <laughs> South Carolina airport. And she got a bit hot. <laughs> yeah. I think she was a little warm. 
And so this, uh, here we go. I'll read this uh, news article from Fox 46, Charlotte, a half naked woman running. I don't know which half it doesn't say running on Florence regional airport property around 1130 AM Sunday, shut down the air uh, runway for about two hours. According to major Mike Nunn with the Florence County Sheriff's office, the woman was spotted running across an inactive runway and into a wooded lot near the edge of the property. We were informed by the witness slash caller that a female, which was unclothed, well, okay, gained access to airport property and was last seen traveling south on the airport property within the fenced area. And then they went out looking for her. Um, Some officers, along with K-9 units, found the half-naked woman lying down in a ditch primarily used for drainage north of runway 27. The woman was taken into custody and then transferred to an area hospital for evaluation. So I guess, is this like some advanced aviation streaking thing going on? We're going streaking. Is that a thing? (laughs) Showing it all. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Okay. Really don't know what to say about that other than folks don't do that. I have geeks. Keep your shirts on. I know. Keep your pants on and your shirts. Okay. Finally. Yeah. I was going to, no, I'm not going to say okay. it. I was going to say something and I just stopped myself. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> it makes it easier for me to edit this thing. Yes. Um, so this, I don't know if you, you guys saw this video. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, yep. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to share. It's good enough that I'm going to share the audio with everybody, but let me read a little bit of this uh, headline here from, uh, let's see, Facebook. Uh, let's see. Visitors to the French ski resort of Courcheval. Is that the way you pronounce that? Not sure. Okay. Uh, witnessed an unlucky pilot fail. Oh, witnessed an unlucky pilot fail to stop his plane in time during a landing and then crashed into a pile of snow. And this was a Piper PA-46 registration. <laughs> I love the registration. F, guys. <laughs> Foxtrot dash golf uniform Yankee Zulu. And you can make up your own thing there with that. Um, uh, rolling away from the off strip and plowing into the pile of snow nearby. Now, it doesn't look like there was a heck of a lot of runway for this type of an airplane to get a normal landing roll. Uh, but I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in general aviation, but we're going to have this link in the show notes. You can all watch it if you haven't already seen it. And let's listen to a little bit of the audio of this. And it's pretty painful to listen to actually. Ow. <laughs> and... It uh, actually it was not really that funny. I mean, it's funny in a certain way, but there were injuries on board this flight. And the reason why you're hearing this music in the background is apparently there must have been like a restaurant or a coffee shop uh, next to the airport uh, overlooking this. And the person who was filming this airplane coming in for a landing um, was in the coffee shop. One of those plane spotters, I bet. And uh, so anyway, this thing comes in and obviously is not getting a lot of friction uh, to stop the airplane. And it literally plows into a very large snowbank. And it turns out that four of the five passengers on board received injuries. And one of them 
uh, was reported to be seriously injured. So it's not really that funny. Uh, but I was, I would like to know what the heck this pilot was thinking that he could let, or he or she could land this airplane in that amount of room. What do you think, Dana? Uh, you, you know, know you know, I, I am no general aviation expert. Well, actually, well, you're more of an expert than either yeah, Nick or I. That amount of runway space. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you can see at the beginning of it, there's a bit of a, a, a hill. So mm-hmm. I don't know if this part of it was supposed to be landing uphill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he touched down late, but that amount of runway, I'm only guessing maybe a thousand feet at the yeah. most, maybe Doesn't even work. less. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's that was that was crazy. He seemed to be carrying a lot of speed as well. Well, it's a, it's a it looks like it was a, a uh, Malibu or something similar, mm-hmm. Piper. Yeah, it's a Malibu. Yeah, Piper. So it's Malibu. a PA forty six, whatever. Yeah, that is. So I think that's a Malibu, a similar, and that's uh, it's a pretty hefty airplane it's not a light airplane so it's going to carry a bit more speed than you're used to seeing on any type of single engine airplane i would imagine it's approach speed somewhere around 90 maybe even 100 knots okay. I'm, I'm no expert in that respect but based on what i'm seeing uh it looks like you touched down late yeah if michael so sullivan be- in the chat room says the runway goes uphill and then it levels off and that's where the aircraft touched down on the top half the top of yeah top of the half so you're so, you're right dana that's uh and, and it looked partially contaminated as well. There mm-hmm. was large areas of snow on it, so uh, you, you don't know what the braking action was. Yeah, I mean, it. it I agree with you. There, there is large patches, but it's not solid. That no, no, it's not. No, yeah, it, it sounded like there was some pretty good grip because you could hear the yeah. tires screeching. It, it's wet. It's clearly yeah. wet. Um, you know, and and if it's warm enough with you know the black top, you know, with the temperature. Uh, I don't know temperatures there, but with the sun shining on it, you know, anywhere it is blacktop generally tends to melt down a little bit, even if it's below freezing. Um, but yeah, he just clearly touched down way too late. He should have gone, wait, wait, what, what can you always do? You can always, always go, go around. around. He, that would have been the best choice there. Yeah. Come back and land at the first. I mean, I can't see in the video where the first part of the runway is, and I don't have any data on it. Mm-hmm. But if you landed going uphill, uh, that would dissipate a lot of energy. Yeah, you have gravity working well, for I, you. I've seen one of the – there are two videos, and I've seen one where he does actually touch down. It shows him touching down just before the mound, just before the mm-hmm. top of the hill. Um, but when he gets to the top of the hill, he's going so fast, he nearly gets airborne again. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to be able to break during the first sort of half of his rollout. When he does start break hard, it's all a bit late. Does that have any reverse propeller kind of stuff? Um, uh, no. that kind of an airplane? No. Okay. No. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm watching it again and, uh, it's, it's, even if you touch down, you can see him slam on the brakes. He didn't even try to go around. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually killed. Yeah, I was watching it. The, he actually looks like the thing shut wasn't even turning the engine before he impacted. Yeah, because the pr- propeller stopped spinning before he impacts. Wow. So that was actually on his part. I hate to say it, but that was pretty smart because that saved the engine. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, I'm not sure what that is. Might be a, a Socata, actually. No, it's a PA. Yeah, that's a PA. So yeah, that's. Uh, <clears throat> I think. The damage to the airplane actually may not be too terribly significant. Damage to the people, though, on the damage other hand? Damage to people, yeah, you know. Not good. 
I'm looking at the video even further, and it looks like most of that runway is just wet. It's just, I, I don't even think it's 1,000 feet. I mean, I'm maybe even 500 feet long. Hmm. Yeah, doesn't so, look like a lot from what we can see in the video. Not a lot. You know, that's that's just very poor planning on the pilot's part, especially yep. if he has that many people on board the airplane. You know, you have no chance. So. Yeah. Dan in the chat room says it's uphill and then flattens out, as we just mentioned, uh, said, as Michael said go around is basically impossible for how far this guy touched down. So, and as you said, as soon as you shut down the engine, go around is definitely impossible. Yeah. You're not going any further. Yeah. You're but basically the looks, space shuttle. It looks based on the video. I mean, I don't know what, you know, beyond the cockpit into the snowbank, but it looks like it was fairly soft and doesn't look like um, people being hurt. Um, I'm just hoping that, you know, they had their seat. If they had their seat belts, harnesses on you know they they could have minimized their injuries i would imagine well one young woman seriously injured so that would tell me that she probably did not because that impact was significant but it wasn't yeah it wasn't any worse than you know doing 25 miles an hour and a 30 miles an hour in a in a car you know yeah it shouldn't be anybody seriously injured on that but hey listen i don't know what i'm talking about None of us do. I'm not a doctor. We we are missing Dr. Steph, and she would probably be able to give us her, her opinion on that. But, yes, clearly not enough runway. Peter in the chat room says it was 1,762 feet long. I, well, I guess that's pretty short. That can't yeah. be right. Gradient 18.6. Wow. That must be that's the total- part that, that must be the part that we're looking that we can't see. That's to the left of the of the frame. 18.6% gradient. Wow, that's steep. Oh, Nick Camacho says Camacho says that many older. Well, I don't know, but this doesn't. I don't. Well, it may have been an older GA plane. So I would imagine this airplane would have shoulder harnesses. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, that's too new of an airplane. It has, especially the the front seats will have shoulder, yeah. shoulder harnesses. I can tell you the Piper Warrior that I had was a 1978 version of it had shoulder harnesses. Hmm. So, and this is a newer. Newer aircraft. Oh boy. Oh well. Sad yeah. to see it. And Sad um, to see it. That is it for our news for today's show. And that means it's now time for your great feedback. Captain. Incoming message. David writes or types. Good evening, Jeff, Steph, Dana, and Nick. After listening to APG 359, part of your feedback rang a bell in my distant memory. I'll try and set the scene. It is September 2018, and Storm Helene has arrived in Ireland. I've headed from the north, dodging trees to arrive at the busy metropolis that is Dublin Airport. I've been monitoring the flight status, and nothing was moving between 9 a.m. and noon. As I arrive at around 2 p.m., The terminal has that slightly nervous, paranoid atmosphere of an airport where not all is well. I score an early success with picking up a standby for the earlier 4 p.m. flight to Manchester. What's more, this is the only flight in the airport showing an on-time departure. Predictably, this is not what happened. And over the course of the next seven hours, we changed gates nine times, eventually boarding at around 11.30 p.m., only to sit on the plane for another 45 minutes, waiting for the bags to be loaded. Our plane and crew have been stolen from a flight that was meant to be heading out to Spain. 
Our flight attendants had been waiting for our flight since 4 p.m. Passengers are pleased to be getting going. There were no hotels available, and our options seem to be focused on sleeping at the airport. The scene is set. The doors are closed. The tug attached, and the pushback started. The flight attendants start their safety brief. Midway through, though, the call button is pressed repeatedly. The flight attendants stop, and so does pushback. We then discover a full-blown shouting match, most of the shouting by the flight attendant, who was outraged that a passenger had taken a picture of him doing the brief. Passenger explains that he is sending a message to his other half, telling her that we are on the way. The argument goes on with plenty of histrionics for another few minutes. The flight attendant wants the passenger off the plane, and preferably arrested. Fortunately, the lead flight attendant was not up for this. I suspect that it would have been the end of any chance of our flight departing, and quietly dealt with the situation. I think she told her colleague to live with the fame on this occasion. While the passenger should not have taken the photo, the conduct of the aggrieved flight attendant was some of the most unprofessional behavior that I've ever seen. We did eventually get back to Manchester, way after my last train home. Ultimately, Aer Lingus packed, uh, picked up my 150-pound Uber home, so all, uh, all was well. Uh, moral of the story, point the camera outside the window. So that is David's experience with taking pictures inside the cabin, especially if you're not flying with Southwest Airlines. They don't seem to care, but apparently the Aer Lingus well, flight attendants do. Neither do I care. Yeah. I mean, I don't care either. Everyone has got a phone with a camera on it mm-hmm. and a camera with a camera in it. And uh, good Lord, I mean, you're not exactly in a private place when you're in an airplane. Mm-mm. So I just don't see the problem. I don't either. I I don't see the problem as well. Apparently a very long day. You know, I can understand some people react uh, differently when they are tired. And I don't know really what to say well, about this. I, I'm, I'm glad his, uh, uh, his senior uh, flight attendant uh, got everything sorted. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I agree, David, that you sometimes, you know, it's not worth aggravating people. But for heaven's sake, these these uh, our flight attendants are... Should be well trained and able to cope, and even if they have had a long day, I'm sorry, um, you know. Uh, they <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this could have been a disaster. Just if think the guy about had it. Had his way. I know. That's yeah, uh, they, they might never have gone. I know. Run, run out of due time. Whatever. Interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, on an earlier show, uh, let's see. This is from Tillman. Our good friend in Berlin. Very Uh, good friend in Berlin. Yes. Uh, He says, just a quick update to the recent question about using maps as a passenger on a jet. I used Sky Demon as a passenger on a 737 recently, and it worked like a charm at the window seat. I did not even need the extra GPS receiver that I have. So the key is the offline map base. The build-in GPS in the, or the built-in GPS in the iPad does have sufficient reception and also works in airplane mode. All well, the best. It, it works on a 7.3 because they're made of paper. <laughs> yeah. Bam. I knew you had to say something. Actually, I didn't think you would, but. <laughs> wow. Okay. Didn't see that one coming. Thank you, Tillman. Check out Sky Demon. S-K-Y-D-E-M-O-N. It's a nice app. I suspect it's one of those GA apps, but probably not cheap. 
I had intended to uh, download that and because we uh, deadheaded on today's last flight, but I completely forgot about it. I was going to test it out myself. But All right. Oh, well. We have some audio feedback from Ed Lahini. Uh, he calls himself J.J. Pittsburgh for some reason. And he has some questions about audio. Hey, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Captain Dana. It's J.J. Pittsburgh here. I was uh, curious about radio communication on planes. Um, I always listen to um, liveatc.net, and I'm fascinated by that. And I was wondering how that system works. Is there some sorts of um, towers? Because that's you know quite a distance up, and I was just wondering how the radio communication works. Um, but my ultimate question would be, um, because there is um, redundancy on aircraft systems, is there redundancy in radio? Um, so if a radio system went out on the plane, would there be a backup system for it? And have any of you come encountered um, radio problems where your radio went out and you would have to use a backup system? I was definitely curious about that because I haven't heard it um, spoken about on the show so far, but I am still working through all the old shows. So if you did repeat it, I apologize. But anyway, have a good day. Hope to meet with you all soon. Peace and love, peace and love. Peace and love to you. Okay. So let's see, do we have Miami Rick here today to talk about aviation, uh, very high frequency radio. <laughs> no, sadly not. No, no. He, th- he would be perfect for this, wouldn't he? Well, yeah, but uh, well, I'm we can a, fake uh, it. Go ahead. I'm a radio ham. All right, Nick. Oh yeah. All right. Why don't you uh, tell us about uh, VHF, um, mostly VHF radio, a little bit of UHF, but mostly, as I said, the uh, VHF. Well, there's thing. not much to be said really, other than uh, the, as, as I understand it, the uh, live ATC. Um, they've got a, a, a series of volunteers who uh, will tune in to the frequencies. Now, some of them will use dedicated uh, radios on a single frequency. Others will use scanners, which will uh, scan a number of f- uh, frequencies. And when there is a transmission, they will uh, stop on that frequency, record the uh, audio, and then move on, just so that they can cover more frequencies with less equipment. Um, which works very well. Uh, the average range of VHF, well, if, if you're getting a, if you happen an aircraft, then you can get a couple of hundred miles probably out of a VHF set, UHS uh, slightly less. Um, but it d- depends to a certain extent of how powerful and how uh, good the antenna are, and that's a movable feast depending on the aircraft. Um, when you're going uh, at lower levels, of course, things get in the way that attenuate the single signal. And uh, even if you're up quite high, uh, you know, if you get a lot of cloud, uh, a lot of moisture in there, that can uh, attenuate the signal. And, uh, in other words, reduce uh, its uh, range. Uh, but uh, um, that's basically how it all works. And these fine volunteers record and then retransmit the uh, the signals that they're receiving over the internet, which is just a matter of changing it from uh, one type of audio to another that you can uh, put on the internet. Um, 
I don't know what much else there is to say when it comes to a radio failures. I don't know about you guys, but the radios on uh, my aircraft are pretty damn serviceable uh, 99% of the time. We have three VHF radios that we can use and two HF. Now, HF, uh, high-frequency VHF, very high-frequency. The difference is that the HF radios have quite a a long wavelength in comparison. And when you have a long wavelength, uh, it can uh, physically bounce off part of the atmosphere called the ionosphere. And uh, when those waves are reflected back, rather than disappearing out into outer space like they do on a VHF uh, frequency, uh, they can be picked up uh, way beyond uh, the horizon that you would normally get on a VHF radio. So when you transmit, they go up into the ionosphere, uh, hit that, reflect back down again. They can then make several jumps. They can hit the Earth, bounce back up, hit the ionosphere a second time and a third time. Uh, and uh, depending on the power, you can almost get around the world doing that. Um, the ionosphere, of course, moves. Uh, it's dependent upon uh, where the sun is. When the sun's up, it uh, it shifts. When it sun's down, it is um, easier to use and there's less uh, interference. Uh, but you have to change the frequency depending on whether the sun is up or down. And uh, the higher the sun, the higher the frequency. So, um, you know, if you're using, as I did on the way out, uh, uh, 2872, um, it would be a low frequency for night, and 11375 might be a high frequency for a day. But uh, that's how uh, kind of uh, very quickly how HF works. VHF didn't like that. VHF is line of sight. So uh, you really do need to be able to more or less see the the people you're talking to, which isn't hard when you're at 30,000, 40,000 feet, but uh, uh, that's really it. Uh, what else could we say? Yeah, typically the um, the VHF band, um, the workable, usable distance is about 200 miles, uh, 200 nautical miles or less. Um, and as Captain Nick mentioned, we have uh, any kind of an air carrier aircraft is going to have redundant Everything is going to have redundant systems, including radio communications, and the airplanes are required to have at least two um, sets of radio transceivers, at least. Uh, most have three or more. And um, now as far as the air traffic control side of things, I don't know exactly, but I would imagine, I know that they uh, periodically will ask us to switch to a different frequency, which is a backup frequency, and they'll say, you know, how do you hear? And you say, you know, five by five or loud and clear or whatever, or whatever the, the signal and, and, uh, noise is. And, uh, then they'll say, okay, stand by. And then they switch to another one. So it seems like they have multiple backup frequencies for each of the important frequencies they use to communicate with us via VHF. And I suppose it's just some big honking tower somewhere or, or a bunch of them out there. I'm not sure how, um, far spaced they are. Um, but uh, they definitely do have backup radios because I've heard them ask us to verify that they were usable. Yeah, we, we use uh, HF quite a lot uh, on the Atlantic, even though we have um, CPDLC, which is data link. Uh, transfer our backup in case all that fails is an HF uh, radio. 
uh, which is pretty old-fashioned, quite honestly, and often uh, really quite difficult to use, very noisy. And because it makes so much uh, noise, you can't really listen to it all the time. So we use a system called Cell Call, um, which uh, they transmit a, uh, a two-tone uh, audio signal uh, which activates a, uh, a special alarm in the set when it hears the appropriate tone and uh, makes a, a noise, an alarm noise in the flight deck, so you know you're being called on that frequency. Uh, and uh, that's how we listen out, so we don't actually need to have the audio turned up all the time. I have a story about HF. Oh, go ahead. And cell call, or the lack thereof. <laughs> so I used to fly the C-141B Starlifter. Uh, the U.S. Air Force had the option of paying for cell call, but they decided they were going to save money. <laughs> really? Yeah. So expensive. we flew all over the globe, over the Atlantic and Pacific and Indian Oceans. Guess what? With HF radio on the entire time. Oh, no, no and that's probably deaf. why I'm going deaf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why I oh, have... No tinnitus in my ears and a constant oh, it's ringing it's, it's like white noise mm-hmm. i mean you know it's it's like guantanamo bay again mm-hmm. oh ouch yeah it's it's <laughs> horrible not be it's, good, it yeah. is horrible so yeah but we were required to monitor it the entire time i guess that was the first officer's job was it yep <laughs> so there you go yeah, I mean, there there are some, uh, when we used to do the uh, the route from Tokyo back to London and went way north, there were some uh, Russian control authorities that didn't have cell call. They couldn't activate it uh, because they were so basic. Um, so we used to have to listen to those, and 20 minutes listening to that and driving a man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Think about four or five, six, seven hours of that oh i can't i can't I yeah can't. so I've, I've lost the odd hf radio we've had the odd hf radio that's gone down but i have to say i've never had a vhf radio I had some software problems with uh the equipment that distributes the audio we used to have a software problem where the audio used to mute itself uh quietly and you wouldn't realize that suddenly everything had gone quiet uh for ages and it was very embarrassing have you heard anything on the radio for a while yeah exactly that's weird (laughs) why is that mirage on my wing exactly (laughs) oops yes exactly unlike you guys have actually never used an hf radio well you're consider yourself blessed um and you know have you ever had uh dual radio failure Dana, in any no. of your experience? No, I have no. And, 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 and on our aircraft, we actually have three radios yep. on the aircraft. So right. I've never seen more than one radio ever go yep. at any one time. Exactly. Usually it's like one particular um, channel or, or frequency that you've selected. And then usually you just go to the other one and it works fine. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's move on to Raymond uh, item four. I was wondering how exactly the winglet fences on an A380, for example, reduce drag. I am aware there is more airflow disturbance on the wingtips, and that increases drag, which reduces fuel efficiency. And what is the difference between blended winglets and winglet fences, and why do some manufacturers prefer either of them? Perhaps one for Nick. Tailwinds, blue skies, and rolling takeoffs. This is from Raymond 
Gulia Tonda on Facebook. Tell us about wing tip fences and winglets, Captain Nick. Well, this is a nice one, Raymond, because it kind of goes back to basic aerodynamics. And uh, we all know that uh, when you're flying along, yeah, pressures on the top of the wing and underneath the wing are, are quite different. So uh, the top of the wing will have a, a lower pressure than underneath. And um, the pressures like to try and equalize. So that uh, low pressure on top, the, the higher pressure underneath the wing is going to continually try and escape around the wingtip to get to the higher pressure because it naturally wants to equalize those pressures. And as it goes from underneath to on top of the wing, because, of course, it's also traveling backwards, it uh, generates this very large vortex that uh, attaches onto the wingtip. Now, that vortex takes a lot of energy to create, and that energy has to be taken from somewhere. And, of course, it's taken from the aircraft's uh, smooth transition through the or smooth flight through the air uh, in the form of a lift-dependent drag. So that's where it comes from. Now, if you can limit the path of the air from underneath to on top of the wing, then you're going to reduce the size of that vortex. Now, in the old days, they used to do pretty blunt things, like putting just a plate on the end of the wing. That was considered uh, sufficient. But, of course, any any uh, place where there's a, a hard join or a, a bit of a right angle will in its own right, create a little vortex. It'll it'll create a little disturbance. So it's much better to have something that's blended, and that's what you'll see on the most modern aircraft now. And it's only really through our ability to use modern composite materials that we've been able to create these beautifully curved, blended wingtips that curl up. And it forms the same purpose, really, uh, whether... And some aircraft, you'll see the entire wing will deflect uh, quite a long way up, and others it'll just be the wing tip. Some aircraft, it's just a bolt-on uh, addition. Um, but uh, whatever it is, it, it's still trying to do the same thing. It's trying to prevent the air from having an easy path uh, and create a large vortex. So what we're trying to do is just limit the size and the the intensity of that vortex, which in turn will limit the drag, even if you can do it only by you know, a few percent, then that's going to make a significant difference over a long flight to your fuel consumption. So the reason that you'll see uh, plates on some early aircraft uh, is because that's the way it was, it was uh, e the easiest way it was to do. And now with modern computer aerodynamics and our ability to create beautifully blended and strong uh, carbon fiber composites that are uh, uh, you know specifically made to, to form this uh, really uh, super design then you'll get a much more efficient effort and uh, in some wings they've made them very long because they think that's more efficient and often it's manufacturers just trying to eke out the the, uh, the last little bit of efficiency, sometimes it doesn't really make that much difference. Uh, and on others, it might almost be like putting go faster stripes on your car. You know, it doesn't have a lot of practical effect, but it makes it play look damn good. Uh, but most of the time, they're, they're done for, for genuine aerodynamic reasons. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's probably a trade-off 
when you get to the point where these things are super large and tall and you know fancy things but i think the blended winglets obviously as you mentioned are are doing the job much more efficiently than the slap-on you know fences at the end of the wings but at least the fences are doing something better than nothing oh absolutely yeah that's yeah this is a good one we were trying to get to this one on a previous show and we didn't we ran out of time and i believe nick you're the one that found this no, no, not me, sir. No. Oh, I thought you I did. Think, okay. I, think, I think Liz might have popped Maybe this Maybe Liz in. did. Okay. Uh, yeah. This is the title of this is flight attendants open letter to rude passenger goes viral for the right reasons. And let's see. This is again from an anonymous flight attendant uh, was inspired to pen a powerful open letter to an individual she refers to as passenger in 5A. Her identity remains anonymous, but it's the realness of her words that resonates with those of us who know this industry inside and out. And this is from a blog, uh, Christine Hogg. She's the associate digital editor at PAX Global Media. And uh, so let's read this letter. Dear passenger in 5A, yesterday, when I wouldn't let you come to the front of the airplane because the pilots were going in and out of the cockpit, you informed me I was just a flight attendant. I've had some real time to reflect on that and decided to educate you on a few facts regarding this flight attendant. First, let's review my training and requirements for this job. I know how to fight fires while 35,000 feet in the air. I can perform CPR, do first aid basic all the way up to inserting an IV. I know how to identify guns and weapons. I know how to identify bombs and then move them to a location on the aircraft that will hopefully cause the least damage should they go off. I know basic survival skills for land and water. I know how to disarm people brandishing a gun, how to actually kill someone if need be, how to prepare an airplane for an emergency landing so every person aboard has the best chance of survival, and how to then evacuate the aircraft in under 60 seconds. I've been taught how to deal with people from many different cultures, people who are disgruntled, people who are downright rude. I received excellent training for all these skills and every year have to go through refresher training and learn new skills. Second, I'd like to share with you some of the personal experiences I've had in the last 20 years as a flight attendant. I've held the hand of a grieving mother who was flying across the country to claim her 21-year-old son's dead body. I've given my personal clothes to a passenger who threw up, although I had nothing else to put on. I've been poked in my arm and sides many times by people who can't wait for me to finish with one person before they get their drink. I've held babies while their parent went to the back bathroom. I've been yelled at for not having the exact food a person wanted. I've prepared an aircraft for an emergency landing, and while you were arguing with me for about not wanting to turn off your computer, I was hoping I would be able to see my children one more time. I stood with tears in my eyes in the door of an aircraft while the remains of a U.S. soldier were lowered in a flag-draped coffin. I've had the honor of flying U.S. troops into foreign deployment areas. I missed Christmas Day with my family, so you could get to your family. My work schedule is constantly changing, and there are times I go five to six days without a real night's sleep. I watched the events of 9-11 in horror, heartbroken from what my colleagues went through that day. I was scared to go back to work, but I reassured my child that I would come home, all the while knowing it could happen again. I watched a man die in front of me because the CPR we performed didn't revive him. 
Then I tried to reverently place his body on the airplane floor for the remainder of the flight. And when we landed, I sat with his body for over an hour until the coroner could pick it up. Please know that I do love my job and I choose to do it. I have a college degree and I'm a mother, a grandmother, a friend, a human being. So the next time you look at me and think, just a flight attendant, I hope you quickly remember who is trained and willing to get you out of a crashed airplane, save you from hijackers, perform CPR on you if need be, and the easiest part of my job, give you food and drinks. Well done. Wow. That was fantastic. What a beautifully composed letter. Yep. Not much more you can really say there, can you? Absolutely not. Well read, sir. And, you know, not a bit. everybody listens to the show. We understand that being a flight attendant is a very important job, and it's a very difficult job. And uh, this letter here really does a good job of describing it. And I don't think anybody would argue with anything that she said. Or he should No, said. certainly not. I, I would like to have it broadcast loud and clear to uh, those grumpy drunk passengers who just make our lives on board a, a nightmare and just remind them, uh, you know, that the people they're dealing with, not only the uh, human beings and deserve respect just for that, mm-hmm. they are really well-trained and uh, highly motivated people. But eventually, if you keep at them, you'll get them down. And that's obviously how this lady feels. Yeah. She just well, needed to vent. <laughs> and let's face it, most people that are passengers are just thinking that the flight attendant is just there as a sky steward, as a waitress in the sky, a waiter in the sky, when in fact most people don't even realize their true job is to be there to save their butt if something ever happens. And that letter is just, I don't I don't want to broadcast over the uh over the intercom on the airplane. I want that broadcast in every airport throughout the entire world. I'd like to have that broadcast on World News tonight. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that was just very well done. You know, Dana, I think that most people understand that they're there for, for that, but they just kind of ignore that. You know, they, they look the other way and think uh, and that, that's never going to happen, you know, so um, really what no, you're here it, for it, is it, to... It, it, it won't, and it's a yeah. pipe dream that we could ever ever expect. I mean, just like today, I mean, how many people got off the airplane today that I said, oh, thank you for flying with us today, or, or, you know, appreciate your business. Have a great day. Don't even have the decency to look at you. As well, you that's more of a, <laughs> a symptom of today's society. Well, but that's true to the same effect yeah. what she was just talking, or he is talking about. I mean, people just don't, are not willing to acknowledge Mm-hmm. in today's society and that's yeah i'm but, sorry uh, the number of short. plane tales i've covered where we end up with a disaster and uh the flight attendants just go above and beyond in their attempts to uh, save their passengers uh, it happens over and over again so you know i i just have the utmost respect for them because i know how brave they've been in the past and i'm sure how they'll be in the future it, it just kind of upsets me sometimes when people don't treat just the average person with respect let alone someone who goes through their training and i tell you what you see our cabin crew when they do their annual refresher training they have to work so damned hard to get through that they 
really do. And quite often, uh, we're in the building at the same time and we amalgamate. And I tell you what, uh, we've been asked to sit in the um, the mock fuselages when they do uh, their, their evacuation. It's For them, it's like us doing a simulator. They're actually being tested uh, that very moment on how they perform, and we're just the dumb passengers. Uh, and, uh, you know, when they really get down to it and start doing their proper safety job sometimes it really pins your ears back you know you really go wow you know these these girls who sometimes i think even we sometimes are uh you know think of them as dumb blondes or you know uh, we just you know we we forget sometimes uh, that just how good they can be at their job and when you actually see them doing it right in front of you you go well okay i'll just reassess <laughs> Yes. I'll just reassess now for me because that was really good. <laughs> and I'm really amazed at the uh, flight attendants that work for airlines like Dana and mine and and yours as well. You have different different fleet types, and they're required to know every single airplane that that airline flies, not just one or two like you know we are required to know. Um, and they have to know exactly how to open the doors and how to do all the different procedures for all the different airplanes. I'm thinking that's just amazing. Oh me. yeah. Uh, they have to know where every single piece of safety equipment is located mm-hmm. and they don't make it easy for them. They give them the most complicated, uh, charts. So they have to fill out and, uh, you know, it really requires, it's a mental trick to be able to learn where all that is and how to do it. But they're very good. And yeah, there are a lot really of, are. a lot of, uh, flight attendants that don't make it through that training. Um, that's one of those things that you know, a lot of people yeah. don't know about. Many of them speak uh, multiple languages, uh, mm-hmm. and and they're so damn good at their job. You see the bit uh, where they come and serve you nicely and give you good drinks and smile and look happy, but geez, that's only a tiny bit of what they're capable of. And and even that is choreographed, Nick. Yeah, even that is you know per the company procedures and policies. Yeah, which as, they've had to learn on top of everything else that they exactly. Have to do. Yeah, I mean it's. I think I think at Acme it's six weeks, if I remember correctly, somewhere around there, of just pure adrenaline studying, and it it it's just amazing how much. I, and you know, I used to work in that training center, and I've worked very closely with the flight attendant training instructors, and I've seen what they you know personally go through on a regular basis, and what the you know what the uh, the curriculum looks like. It is. It is it is quite literally the biggest fire hose you could ever imagine. Maybe think of uh, probably four semesters of college worth worth of work done in about six weeks. That's how intense it is. So yeah, my hats off to all the professional flight attendants out there because it takes a lot to be a flight attendant. It's just not somebody serving drinks on an airplane, and uh, and we're we're for fortunate. Uh, you know, I know you, you, you know, or Acme Red, Nick, you guys have great flight attendant staff, and we at, at Acme here also have extremely good uh, flight attendant yeah. staff that uh, do an excellent job day in and day out. So. Yeah, and, and we, we never forget that actually they're the face of the company to our customers, uh, and it's their professionalism that the customers see, not ours. All they get from us is, uh, you know, a PA, and hopefully we don't bang it in on the runway. 
Yeah. But no, it's, and it's the, the PAs, cabin crew. A lot of the PAs are like this. <laughs> well, I bet yours are, Jeff, but uh, and yours, Dana, but because uh, we've learned how to. Well, you know, we're podcasters. We know wait, wait, wait. Yeah. nobody in still understands what I'm saying when I'm talking. <laughs> well, even if it's loud and clear, they still don't understand. <laughs> what is he yeah. saying? I don't know. They He's do from Boston. When I say when it's really cold outside and I say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm taking a survey. Who on the aircraft would like to go to Jamaica instead of going to Cleveland today? <laughs> and then I would say, I can always, I can do anything once, ladies and gentlemen, but today I'm just, I can't do that one thing. I'm sorry, but listen. <laughs> You know, I always I try to make light of it, and and you know, I I realize the flight attendants have a tough job, and here's something to think about. Here's some food for thought. In the airline business, the flight attendants spend the most face time with our passengers. Yep. Out of anybody in the company, they spend the most face time. So when you say, Nick, that they are the face of our company, they truly, indeed, are. And and uh, everything they do every day is is ridiculed, looked at, um, is is pointed out, and they are they probably have one of the most difficult jobs. Yep, yeah. they do. Well, they really do. All of us here, uh, all of us professional airline pilots on the APG crew, salute our flight attendants. We really for sure love you absolutely. Greetings, Captain Jeff. APG crew and APGers out in APG land. Uh, James Graves Brown here again. I just wanted to thank you guys for your last feedback on me asking about filming with my GoPro on the plane. Um, I just, I don't know, I've filmed with my phone on the, on the plane before, but I just, I thought, you know, the GoPro being a little more bulky, and I don't know, it didn't make sense to me that it was the same category as a phone. But obviously it's not using cell service, so yeah. Uh, so I did film the takeoff and landings a couple times. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get a whole lot of good or useful footage because, you know, we were landing in Vegas, uh, the first night, and it was a little too dark to be filming, so obviously the takeoff was the same. Uh, landing in LAX, I tried to shoot, but again, it was a little too dark, so you only see lights here and there. So then I tried to film the takeoff from LAX and silly me not paying attention to the battery life on my GoPro. I only got to film us taxiing to the runway and then we get to the runway and line up and my camera died. Which is super unfortunate because it was a beautiful takeoff and a beautiful day. Slightly overcast, not too bad, so the views were phenomenal. Um, so that was unfortunate. But, uh, nonetheless, I had a question about the, so all four legs of that trip was on 737-800s, I believe, and I wanted to ask you guys if any of you had ever flown, uh, piloted the 737 or flown in the 737, and if so, did you experience rough landings? Because all four legs of my trip, we had pretty rough landings, uh, rough enough to jar people scared um i wasn't too scared i'm actually getting over this fear of flying thing i'm, I'm actually starting to enjoy it now but yeah the, the landings were very rough and i didn't know whether to gauge that to um you know 
inexperienced pilots, uh, maybe auto lands, maybe captains having a bad day, but all four of them, it kind of made me think maybe it's a function of the 737 itself, just a, a rough landing, it's just a rough landing plane. Um, and in comparison, when we flew to Orlando on Frontier's A320, uh, that plane was the smoothest landing I think I've ever experienced. I could hardly even tell that we had landed when we did. So I just wanted to see if any of you had any uh, explanation for that, maybe. Uh, also, I wanted to mention, I was going through the back catalog trying to get caught up. Uh, I listened to an episode where Captain Jeff, where you were a guest on the uh, Airplane Geeks podcast. And so I went over to their podcast to try and find the the episode it looks like it was archived um I'll, I'll do some searching and find it but so i listened to their most recent episode just to see what that show was about it's a good show i don't like it as much as yours but i do it, it was okay um however the episode i listened to there was uh guests on there mike and stefan strausser who make an airplane like an av geek uh, comic strip and it's it's a pilot and his mechanic buddy who are chickens and the, the comic strips called chicken wings and they fly out of a air, uh, airport or airline called roost air anyway you should check it out and uh, maybe you could do an interview with them on your show I, I think that would be cool um, and I do have their information as far as email goes if, if that's something you'd like to uh, to pursue just uh, you can get a hold of me via email and I can give you theirs uh, anyway thank you guys as always clear skies tailwinds and unlimited visibility and safe soft landings thank you yeah. James, do something about that cold. You need to. You need to get better. Yeah, they didn't call it Boeing for nothing, you know. Yeah, well, you know, and we as much fun as we have, like you know, rooting for Boeing or rooting for Airbus. We all know that all the airplanes are great out there, and and pilots are different. They have different skills, different days. I mean. I know he doesn't want to admit it, but I bet that occasionally Nick doesn't have a greased on landing. I know I can admit it that I don't. They're not always great. Well, I've, and, I've seen that. Yeah, shut up. Yeah, I've seen you too. Um, <laughs> yeah, everyone. But I never smooth. say, but you know what? I don't, I I don't ever say anything bad right about now. people like all of you do. But anyway. That's <laughs> because um, you're nice. Yeah, I try to be. But let me tell you what I say when you're not listening. No, I'm no, not going to tell you that. But, you know, it, it's just that experience. I mean, the same thing with you could have a great flight attendant crew or a horrible flight attendant crew. It could be a great flight because of that or a bad flight because of that. It could be, you know, there's so many variables in this whole thing. But we do have fun saying, well, of course, the Airbus was a smooth landing and the, and the uh, 737 was a bad landing. But, you know, it's... I don't know if you can really equate aircraft types with consistency in one way or in another, but um, 
I do want to say, you know, he mentioned at the very end, a different podcast. And by the way, the Airplane Geeks podcast is a great podcast as different than what we do. And I think that's great. Um, I'm glad that it's different than what we do. And I'm sure that they're glad that our show is different from theirs. And our show, by the way, is not an interview type of program. And I'm, I'm glad that um, James kind of put that out there because he talked about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the chicken wings cartoon and the guys that do that. And it was a very interesting segment uh, or a part of the uh, Airplane Geek show. And I listened to it with much interest. But our show is not really an interview show at all. We just kind of cover news and talk about and cover your feedback every week. And we do get occasionally people that have a very strong feeling about people out there are doing great things in the aviation world of new media, podcasts and YouTube videos and that kind of thing. And they're, they're um, awesome uh, talents and they do great things. But uh, that's just not something that we do on our show. There are a lot of shows out there that are interview style or interview format shows, but our show really isn't one of those. And so as much as we do appreciate, as you do, all the great creative talents out there, um, we're going to just stick to the format that we know best, which is covering the news, you know, being the same people every week for the most part, and uh, you know, being uh, a representation of our great community. I quite agree, Jeff. Absolutely. Uh, it, it would be wrong to, to change now, and uh, we like the way it is. Yeah. And I think that most people do. And, um, yeah, I guess we'll keep doing what we're doing and having fun doing it. All right. Thanks, James, for the feedback. And you know what? I think right about now would be the proper time to play this week's plane tale. Mm-hmm. And it is called the checkerboard. I bet you can't figure out what that is all about. Can you? I have an idea. I do too. The old pilot's plane tales. The checkerboard. Those passengers in the know would either strive to sit in a right-hand window seat or be as far away from it as possible, depending on their love of flying. The unlucky ones would lean across, striving to get a peek at the amazing view that was going to appear in the small aircraft windows. So famous was it that aviation enthusiasts the world over would spend their savings just to achieve the experience. As the aircraft turned towards the runway, it would only be a few hundred feet above the ground, and for those in the lucky seats... As the aircraft banked, the sky would disappear to be replaced by the dirty and unkempt roofs of Kowloon. In Shamshuipo, Shekipmai and Kowloon City, tourists would gawp upwards as massive airliners thundered overhead, skimming the rooftops with only fleeting glimpses of them visible through the gaps between the crowded buildings. The locals completely ignored the massive beasts, which, for them, were just part and parcel of their daily life. On board, the passengers would momentarily spy into little apartments, balconies full of potted plants and poles bearing the day's washing. 
Some might wonder if they would pick up clothes and land with the wing decorated with bunting made from pink knickers and old T-shirts. From just above roof level, the city looked rather scruffy and haphazard. The flat roofs were cluttered with air conditioning units, storage boxes, chicken coops, little gardens and the like. But it was home to many locals who, day in, day out, lived under the approach to Hong Kong's Kai Tak Airport. When Kai Tak was in use, Hong Kong was a dependent territory of Great Britain, but it wasn't just given away by the Chinese out of love for Britain. During the period of British colonialism, when much of the globe was coloured pink and it was said that the sun never set on the empire, China was a large and willing market for opium, so there grew a trade between India, China and Britain. Opium from India was exchanged for tea and silk in China, which was sold for vast sums in Britain and throughout the empire. Faced with a drug crisis, the emperor of China tried to halt the opium trade, but this was a far too lucrative a business to allow it to stop without suitable recompense. The British Navy, employing gunboat diplomacy, sailed up the Pearl, the Geelong and the Yangtze rivers, destroying forts, capturing cities and harbours along the way, until the Emperor capitulated. As a consequence, in 1842, he ceded the island of Kowloon to the British in perpetuity. A second opium war a few years later resulted in the Kowloon Peninsula plus Stonecutters Island joining Hong Kong as part of the British Empire. Living conditions on the island were difficult, but eventually it started attracting merchants, particularly after an additional area known as the New Territories were given over on a 99-year lease in 1898. Twenty-two years later, aviation arrived at Kai Tak with the building of an airport. It started with two businessmen, Ho Kai and Ao Tak, as a land reclamation project that went bust, hence its name. But then a man called Harry Abbott opened a school of aviation on the reclaimed land. Soon it had a small grass strip runway, and the RAF began operating from there, building a slipway for seaplanes that landed in Kowloon Bay. Several flying clubs appeared, which eventually amalgamated to become the Hong Kong Aviation Club, to this day a great haunt for GA pilots and airline pilots alike. Hong Kong fell into the hands of the Japanese during the Second World War, they attacked on the very same day of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and under their cruel rule they expanded Kai Tak, using Allied prisoners of war as laborers. The occupation lasted four years, but when back under British rule, the airport became the Royal Naval Air Station HMS Flycatcher. In 1954, plans to develop Kaitak into a modern airport were made public, and by 1957 the runways had been extended. Probably the largest aircraft to operate out of there then was the Bristol Britannia, with the airport being used as a staging stop for BOAC's London to Tokyo route. 
A year later, the main runway was extended further into the harbour, and by 1962, the passengers had the long-awaited comfort of a proper terminal. By the mid-70s, a further expansion increased the landing area to over 11,000 feet, enough to comfortably accommodate the jet airliners of the era. The first 747 to land there was in April 1970, and in those days, to land on runway 13, pilots were required to break cloud and be visual with the airport overhead Chungchow Island some 22 miles away and then fly a completely visual approach. The 70s also saw the introduction of instrument landing systems to aid aircraft during the many times of the year when the airport was plagued by bad weather. By now, it only had one runway, numbered 13 and 31, the old runway's real estate being used for apron space. Landing into the northerly runway, 31, was a relatively simple approach, albeit flown through a narrow gap in between the Pashi-1 battery on Hong Kong Island and the Gough battery on Devil's Peak on the mainland. The water gap was less than 500 metres, around 1,500 feet, and an aircraft passing through it would be descending through 600 feet. Not only was the high ground either side of you something to be very aware of, but the final part of the approach was flown over water which, at night, would look inky black, a dark, uninviting hole. The go-around from this runway was always interesting. Kai Tak was almost completely surrounded by sharp-edged ridges and peaks. Less than five miles to the south and southwest is the island of Hong Kong, most of which is over 1,000 feet high and rises to nearly 2,000 feet at Victoria Peak. Three miles east is Twin Peaks, Violet Hill and Mount Nicholson, which rise to over 2,300 feet. The worst terrain is to the north. It starts less than three miles away as the ground rises into a stark granite ridge and rapidly reaches 3,300 feet around Kowloon Peak and Lion Rock. The only safe terrain is to the west, where, at least initially, the ground is below a 1,000 feet. Don't go too far, however, as pretty soon Lantau Island will appear with its craggy peak at over 3,000 feet above sea level. So a missed approach to runway 13 required careful navigation. An early westerly turn was required to avoid rising terrain ahead, but not too early, or you would be heading for the peak atop Hong Kong Island. Once that initial term was made, a second would be required to navigate the channel between Hong Kong and Lantau, hopefully above the other smaller islands. When I tell you of the care we took preparing for and flying an approach to runway 31, it was nothing to landing on the opposite end, so you can begin, perhaps, to understand how interesting runway 13 was. While the authorities were putting a conventional instrument landing system onto the end of runway 31, it was very apparent that no similar system would serve for runway 13. 
an ILS beam would very quickly run into the high ground to the north, and trying to intercept that beam would require one to pass through solid rock, a trick that the average airline pilot was yet to master. I have yet to discover who took credit for the ingenious solution, but I feel he deserved a pat on the back. Rather than locating the ILS on the end of the runway, it was placed on a high rock some two and a half miles on the extended centreline and angled out to the west, where the terrain was a little more forgiving. Not to be confused with an approach that was aligned with and ended up on the landing strip, it was renamed an Instrument Guidance System, or IGS. The IGS beam pointed into a relatively safe area between the islands where one could manoeuvre and capture the beam without too much danger, albeit the track towards the start of the IGS was flown around the top of Lantau Island, only 1,400 feet above the peak. Once established on the beam, a safe descent could be performed down towards the crowded settlements of Kowloon, so long as one didn't deviate too much. The outer marker was positioned on top of Tsingyai Island, where the crossing height was 1,700 feet and the ground barely 600 feet below. On a good weather day, one would be acutely aware of the ominous presence of the rocky outcrops passing by on the left side as one flew over the crowded Victoria Harbour and descended into the densely populated areas of Western Carolina. By the way, we'll be coming in on runway 13. If you've never flown into Hong Kong before, you'll be amazed at the approach we have to make. What did you mean by that? Runway 13. 13. <laughs> Ominous. You naval types seem to thrive on superstition. <laughs> well, the same runway 13 has a very dicey approach. Bit of a corker, isn't it? Piece of cake. In order to complete a safe landing, one had to be visual with the ground by the time one reached a middle marker beacon, a little less than 700 feet, a mere 2.2 miles before arriving at the rocky mound upon which the IGS had been built. From then on, the rest of the approach would be flown visually. The first point of reference was the checkerboard. On the side of the stone outcrop, there had been painted a large area of orange and white squares, resembling a colourful chessboard. Approaching this marker, one commenced a right-hand finals turn for a little less than 50 degrees, down amongst the buildings to the runway, which stretched out into the harbour with water all around. This turn would be completed around 200 feet, and from then on, things should be simple. At night, your flight path was aided by a series of white flashing lights that led around the turn to the threshold of the runway. For this reason, throughout the entire area of Hong Kong and Kowloon, there was not one single flashing light allowed on a building. Anyway, that all seems simple enough, doesn't it? There were more demanding manoeuvres on other airfields, and ones very similar, such as the Kanazi approach to New York's 13 left and 13 right. In Hong Kong, there were a few additional factors that made the Kai Tak approach one that could test the most capable of pilots. Ignoring the proximity of the unforgiving terrain that surrounded the airport, it was usually the wind that would cause the problems. 
wind of any reasonable strength would curl around the high ground, causing significant swings in direction, rotors, wind shears, updrafts, downdrafts and turbulence. A wind from the east would slacken the turn, which could result in pilots still trying to line up their big aircraft at very low level. A wind from the west would mean a strong tailwind down the IGS with a high ground speed and a tightening final turn. If you got visual late, you might end up cranking the aircraft around with well over 30 degrees of bank in order to line up, and you were always working out in your head what drift you needed to roll out with as you settle onto the centre line so that you didn't immediately drift off it again. Hong Kong has its typhoon season as well, and the weather could be appalling, with pelting rain, very strong gusting winds and poor visibility, but still the airliners would queue up to make their approaches. The 1-3 go-around had to be flown as carefully as the one I described for 3-1. Ahead and to the left there was high ground with a safety altitude of 4,500 feet, only a few miles away, and in the supposedly safe direction to the south, it was still 3,900 feet, barely any better. The safe corridor to fly required the crew to continue along the path of the IGS to the middle marker before turning right and effectively flying down the line of the runway in between the island of Hong Kong and the high ground on Kowloon, before reaching the relative safety of open ocean. On one famous occasion, a 747 went around straight ahead, barely clearing the rocks and only surviving because, by luck, they found a low point on the ridge line. Safely on the ground, particularly on a difficult day, it would be backslaps and handshakes all round, but then would come the departure. On a hot evening, the performance books would be out to calculate how much weight could be carried. Takeoffs were almost always conducted on runway 13, even with a significant tailwind, as to attempt to use runway 31 towards Kowloon and the high ground was just too limiting. The figures were calculated to single degrees of temperature and knots of wind. A small change in the predicted conditions might require a taxi back and an offload of cargo. Inevitably, full power would be required, and as the aircraft eventually lifted off, it was common to see the radio altimeter barely reading as the end of the runway disappeared beneath the flight deck. Out over the black water, all that could be seen ahead were the lights of dwellings way above you on Hong Kong Island. For noise abatement at night, the airport conducted landings on 3-1 and takeoffs on 1-3 in opposite directions, four at a time. When the last of a group of four aircraft got airborne, the first of the next landing group would already be on finals heading straight towards them. Kaitak was an airport with a reputation that has only grown more dramatic since it was closed but there is no doubt it was an exhilarating place to fly into that few captains took for granted. There were plenty of reminders of those who did, including the sight of a nearly new 747-400 sitting in the harbour off the end of runway 13 following a badly flown finals turn. 
With the aircraft's fins sticking up in front of the runway, it was blocking departures, so the armed forces set charges and blew it off. Few senses registered one's arrival at Kai Tank better than the sense of smell. The water channels beside the runway led into Kowloon Bay and were more or less an open sewer for the local inhabitants. As the aircraft landed and the pressurisation system opened up the vents to equalise the air pressure, the smells of Hong Kong would percolate through the aircraft, bringing an awful stench of human excrement, belying the translation of Hong Kong as Fragrant Harbour. One day Bob Hope was travelling on a 747 into Kai Tak and was sitting on the flight deck. When the usual smell arrived, the captain turned to apologise for the stench, explaining that it was sewage. I know what it is, came the reply, but what have they done to it? Despite the smell, however, we all love the place. The people say the same thing about me, that uh, they like me, but hmm, the smell, hmm, not so much. You know what they say about you, Jeff? No. You've got a heart of gold, but you smell a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's better than nothing, I guess. It's funny, though, isn't it? There are places in the world where um, they get such a reputation that uh, uh, they become daunting. Uh, when they don't really need it. And there's most of the time uh, landing in Hong Kong was, you know, it was just a, a lovely day out. It was a beautifully picturesque place. And, of course, uh, the city itself, just a fabulous place to go and visit Hong Kong. I just loved it very much. But, of course, uh, on the days when it got a bit nasty, jeez, it could bite your backside. <laughs> it was, it could be the most horrible of places. And in typhoon season, you know, people used to, well, I've known of it, people used to go sick rather than, uh, you know, knowing there was a typhoon possibly going to come in, they would go sick rather than take the risk of flying a flight in there. So, yeah, it could be quite daunting. I, I took my hat off to the, the Cathay guys and Dragonair guys that, flew day in day out of that uh, that airport uh it was not the easiest of places for sure like nigel right yeah exactly right yeah. Uh, who yeah, if you look back in the plain tales you'll hear our uh, interview captain i on a completely different subject uh concerning uh, the industrial dispute between uh, Cathay pacific and their management but uh, yeah he spent 15 years flying Oh, or longer, flying uh, out of uh, contact. Commander on a 747, right? Well, he flew 777 and a 747 out of that, yeah. and a TriStar. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he uh, he did all three. And, um, yeah, not easy. Not an easy place. And, he, of course, he did it uh, in the good times and the bad as well. So mm -hmm. I actually ran the uh, the story past him to see if he had any uh, major complaints, but he didn't seem to. So uh, hopefully I've got it about right. I was just occasional visitor compared with the uh, the Hong Kong boys. Yeah, and the big thing is taking that the you know if you find a smaller piece of equipment that's a little more maneuverable, maybe maybe a little bit easier. But you bring in the, the you know the heavies in there. I mean that's and they're that's they are, what she said. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, excellent. Uh, yeah. 
So, you know, they're, they're, they're not as maneuverable. A lot more planning goes involved, you know, involved with that. Oh yeah. The 747 is coming around. Uh, were always a popular sight. You know, there's such a vast airplane and, uh, creaming around the side of, uh, the checkerboard and then down into the, uh, uh, you know, into amongst the buildings of, uh, Kowloon on the way towards the end of the runway. Uh, it was always a, very impressive sight. And I used to uh, often used to just go down into the streets and try and photograph the aircraft coming in between the buildings. And you'd only have to Google, Google image, uh, you know, Kitek and to see those kind of pictures. And they are starting very difficult to obtain there because you never knew quite where the aircraft was going to appear in the narrow corridors between the, the buildings. But it was always very exciting. That's one of those places that I ha- I wish that I had been able to fly into. Oh, I, th- I think everyone does now. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you one very quick story. Uh, I I took my camera. I thought one day I, I would get up into the sort of a, a building on the center of the finals turn and photograph aircraft coming around the checkerboard. And I wandered around looking. I saw this tall building. And I thought, well, that'd be quite useful. And there was a, a, a guard asleep on a gate. Uh, and I thought, well, he, he, he's not even looking at me. He's, he's, uh, so he, I, I walked up the side of this building and I climbed up the fire escape onto the, onto the roof. And I sat there on the roof. There was a little parapet around me so no one could see me. And most of the afternoon, just photographing the aircraft uh, coming around. And then I thought, well, it's done starting to go, <laughs> go down. And I'm actually flying out this evening, so I better get down. And then I looked around and I thought, there's an awful lot of people around here. And it took me a while to twig, but uh, I climbed onto the roof of a girls' school, a convent school to be precise. And there I was on the roof of this convent school with With a big camera camera with a huge lens. (laughs) You pervert. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get arrested if they see me trying to climb down now. So I had to sort of hide until the sun went down and then I clambered down where no one was looking and ran. I had to get a taxi and dash back to the hotel and I only got back just in time for checkout. And that taught me a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) At first I was thinking you were going to the place where they thought you were going to commit suicide or attempt suicide. (laughs) But then when you said the girls' school, I went, oh, okay, so it's going a different direction. Convent school at that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Hence, Nick's Nick no, we can't talk about that. No, we can't. No, we don't talk about that anymore. We have yeah. mentioned oh, that enough. We Thank should you. move on then. Okay. <laughs> Great plain tale as always. Thank you, sir. And Excellent. moving Excellent. on to item seven, Sean. Uh, perhaps a Boeing pilot can explain why this keeps happening on B seven thirty sevens. Oh, not another seven thirty seven problem. We don't see this happening with Airbus oh. aircraft. If they're not crashing on the runway, just aerotoxic syndrome. Uh, but at least your ears won't bleed. And this is a link to an article about a Tampa flight turns around after cabin pressure causes passenger to bleed from ears. Now, let me tell you something, folks. It has nothing to do with the airplane type. It has all to do with the fact that people aren't going through their proper procedures and like forgetting to turn on engine bleed systems and that kind of thing. That's my opinion. I don't know. That and passengers flying when they've got a bad cold. That's another, that's a good point. When yeah. you can't clear your ears, uh, yeah, yeah. You should it doesn't not be matter fine. how, yeah, exactly. People don't realize just how uh, serious it can be, even with the limited amount of pressure changes that occurs in a civil airliner. It's enough to cause a lot of damage. I just left on this trip, and 
to be honest, I had a little uh, like sore throat a couple of days before the trip. And I, it felt to me when I woke up the morning of the first day of my trip that everything was felt like my clears were my, my clears were ear. Um, let me try that again. Ears were clear and I wouldn't have any problem at all. But when I was descending into Melbourne, sure enough, I had to do the uh, kind of the manual Valsalva maneuver to clear my ears. And I'm thinking, oh, I guess I wasn't as clear of the stuff that, that I, uh, that I thought I was. And, uh, you know, it's just another reminder that you should be very careful about when you're traveling with any kind of congestion at all, because it can be, it can result in something very bad. Yeah. Even if it's just the pain of yeah. uh, the pressure on your eardrums, when you actually get an eardrum that's damaged and burst a uh, barotrauma, oh, geez, that can put you out of uh, commission for quite a while. It's very nasty. I was flying into Portland, Oregon once years ago in the nineties and we were descending and I guess one of my sinus cavities had some issues uh, with congestion and whatever. And it felt like somebody had taken a ice pick and just like stabbed it into my forehead. And it was very, very painful. And I'm thinking, okay, note to self, I'm not, I'm not going to do this again because that was a serious situation. I was almost incapacitated, not quite, but I was very close to it. And, uh, um, gotta be careful about that. For sure. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, when you talk to them, at the elevation that we actually get pressurized at. So everybody thinks when they take off, for example, out of Atlanta, we're, you know, roughly a thousand foot pressure elevation. People don't think about, well, when we take off, we climb up to, you know, 30, 35,000 feet, that the cabin is uh, in in somewhere around five to 7,000 feet, depending on what aircraft and mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what the pressurization is. And so that's the pressure elevation. So it's like being in Denver or even higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a significant pressure change. But people just don't realize that. So and not, not only the, dif- the the pressure differential, but also the rate at which you're going through that differential. I mean, true, if you're driving true. a car up a mountain, you're, your system is probably going to have time to adapt to it. Um and, and it's very much like scuba diving. When when you are on the surface, and you go down, all right. So when you when it's when you're going up, you're going to much lower pressure mm-hmm. as you go up. But as you go down, now the pressure is increasing, and that's generally when you're going to feel it the most because there's you know far more pressure on your nasals and the feet or your ears. And if you haven't had the opportunity to drain them, or if they're clogged, then that's when the pressure is going to start trying to equalize back and that's when the pressure is going to be the most in the most painful as you were describing with you know the ice pick it's when you are in descent into wherever you're going yeah right so it's it people don't realize it until it's too late yeah it's usually so, going uh, in an airplane going up is usually not a problem it's the going down part that yeah you the same with scuba diving yeah you know from the surface down you know your first 33 feet is an extra atmosphere so it's very difficult to pressure you know to mm-hmm. relieve the pressure and if you're clogged you can't so that's a good thing with scuba diving because you're trying to go scuba diving if you can't equalize um, then you go up and it's going to get better it, it, when you go up it gets much better okay and so it's just it's just, it's it's just the same same thing with flying airplanes very dangerous good point yes okay eight paul 
Hello, APG crew. I was just listening to episode 360 and the discussion about turning circuit breakers on and off during flight. This reminded me of Gary, a Gary Larson cartoon. I love Gary Larson. <laughs> I love these cartoons of far side in which a passenger is contemplating a switch on his armrest, which has two positions. Wings stay on and wings fall off. <laughs> and so you have to, you actually have to see this cartoon frame to really appreciate it. And then you have to have a kind of a warped sense of humor to enjoy Gary Larson's cartoons. But I love them. Well, you have to have a warped sense of humor to enjoy this show. That is true. <laughs> so you'll love this. So look at the show notes and look at this Gary Larson cartoon. Wings stay on, wings fall off. And the contemplation involved and in whether or not to touch that switch. Um, Jordan sent us some audio feedback. He says, love the show. First audio feedback. Hopefully this audio file from my iPhone works. Cheers from the sandbox. And you know what, Jordan? It did work. And now we're going to play your feedback. Hello, APG crew and family. This is Jordan from the great country of Kuwait, leaving my first audio feedback. Uh, first of all, really enjoyed meeting you guys a couple months ago out there in Atlanta. Had a blast. Uh, looking forward to more meetups uh, with you guys in the future. Hope to meet some more of the APG crew. Two questions today. First question regarding flying in international airspace and doing international approaches or just approaches where you're unfamiliar. This is kind of for you, Captain Nick. Uh, the other day or last month, I was flying in Southern California and I was expecting the ILS to Van Nuys, and sure enough, they came to the radio and said, uh, clear for the visual. And so I pulled open my ForeFlight app, and sure enough, there was no visual approach in ForeFlight. It made me think kind of about uh, what it's like flying international. So I know that you fly to uh, Dubai here in the Middle East, and you fly out to New York quite often. So how does that work? Do you uh, make sure that you have every Jepson plate available for those particular airports. Does the airline provide that sort of stuff? Um, I also opened four flight here in the Middle East, and I noticed that there was no VFR or uh, IFR low low and root charts available. There was no approach plates available, so I'm not sure if I have to go buy that stuff or something. So if you, if you can elaborate a little bit on that, I'd appreciate that. Um, I, also, I know there's differences in airspace between, or differences in rules in airspace between EASA and FAA. And so if you could explain a little bit about how that works, uh, flying into the Bravo at some of the larger airports like JFK uh, versus flying into Dubai. I don't know what Dubai is, but uh, I know it's some sort of their version of Bravo airspace. So appreciate some explanations there. Second uh, question, comment, uh, Dr. Steph, come on, this new dog named Truman, really? <laughs> I left some comments on Facebook and uh, Instagram what, what what about taquito or enchilada or empanada? Like, let's keep the Mexican theme going, you know? Anyhow, love the show, guys. Look forward to new episodes each week and uh, hope to see you guys in the future. Clear prop. <laughs> Clear prop. I love, uh, I love Truman, but maybe tequila would have been better. You know, that's a good yeah, one. Yeah, we all love tequila. Yes, we do. Salsa. <laughs> tequila, salsa. Um... Great feedback, Jordan. Thank you. Um, okay. Visual approach. I think I'm not sure. Let, let me see if I understand exactly what you're, where you're coming from here. I think you might have a misunderstanding when somebody clears you for a visual approach. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're cleared for a charted visual approach. There are places that we go that have charted 
visual approaches where you'll actually find them in the Jefferson pages or the four flight pages or whatever. And it's an actual procedure that is a visual approach. But in general, a visual approach is you see the airport. Okay. You're on your own and do whatever you need to do to get yourself to the runway and land. And in general, uh, most airlines policies are that if you have an underlying approach, like an ILS approach, an RNAV approach, you must use that for your guidance, even though you're using mostly outside references to perform your visual approach. Am I getting, is that, is that what you guys are picking up there? Yes. Okay. I don't know. I'm English. But I know. You know let's not let's not act, ask Nick because he doesn't like visual approaches. <laughs> I uh, know because we never do them anywhere yeah. except here. Right. And, well, and, and he and he's talking, you know, in comparison to international versus uh, you know what we have. Uh, I'm not sure about what uh, Jeppesen products are out there beyond, um, you know, the the regular places that are gone to internationally um so i don't know what the coverage would be over there in the middle east uh, i obviously have never flown over there I've barely ever flown outside the borders of the united states however um as far as what you know jeff was just talking about uh, you know your visual approach is a visual approach you know if there's instrument approaches which i would imagine major major airports uh, over there would certainly have published instrument approaches it's just a matter of getting that from the local authorities or jepson now as far as do we have to worry about that any airport that we serve uh, we're going to have our complete uh, plate set now it used to be we would have to have the paper version to anywhere we went in all of our alternates that we used to carry around in our big old flight bags big squarish or rectangular flight bags but nowadays we are you know we we are all electronic so everything that we have would be in our ipad and those are easily uh, updated to the you know the new destinations and places that we go so we don't necessarily have to worry about it other than making sure before we depart to someplace that we haven't been that we have the actual plates loaded on the computer or you know in the old days it would have been make sure we had the paper plates uh, for the uh, new destinations. So. But I really think that there's just a basic misunderstanding of what it means when you are cleared, you know, Delta flight or Acme flight, blah, blah, blah. Do you have the runway in sight? Yes. Or the preceding traffic in sight or both. You're cleared the, you know, you're cleared the visual approach. There is nothing that we go to in the Jefferson pages that says, okay, now I'm going to find the visual approach to two seven left. Very very rarely there are places where there are charted visual approach procedures and it's very few and far between where you'll actually have to fly a certain track like it'll have their uh, like this stadium fly over this stadium and then look for this lake or pond and then turn this direction and line yourself up with the runway that's a very uncommon thing and very few places have them generally 99 percent of the time when they say clear the visual approach you're just basically flying the same instrument approach that you were flying, except that now you're looking outside and you're just using the instrument guidance to keep you safe. Yeah, I mean, when you clear you for the visual approach, you're on the... I'm sorry. We have a little bit of a lag, Jeff. I don't... I, I'm sorry they accept you there. Um, visual approach is a VFR procedure, period. 
Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, like Runway 31 into LaGuardia. That's a very nice instrument instrument to visual charted approach where you have to, you know, have certain certain features uh, with the tanks. You have to have them, those to, you know, accept the visual approach. Okay. Um, but so uh, uh, Pilot Pip, is he, he's a, a European, mostly European flying pilot. He says, we call them VPT, visual prescribed tracks. Quite a few airports have them in this part of the world. Again, that's not a, I don't think that's the same thing as a visual approach, although you're using, using visual procedures. But perhaps that's the problem here. Uh, maybe in other parts of the world, you might see VPTs. I've never heard of that before in my life. Uh, but here, visual approach just means that you're basically taking responsibility for safely getting your airplane from the point that you are cleared the approach down to the runway. But if there is, and most airlines policies are going to be, if you have an instrument approach procedure like an ILS, you're just not going to turn everything off and go, well, screw all that. I don't need it anymore. You're still going to use the, you're going to still be flying the instrument approach procedure basically uh, to the runway and just using that as a reference to make sure that you're not getting too low or too high or whatever and um, landing on the runway. So I think it's just a basic misunderstanding of what it means to fly a visual approach, at least here in the U S anyway, you know, and, and I, we, we both know of a particular airline that this was actually a big issue at um, because you're shooting, you're cleared for a visual approach, but then you go missed and you'd fly the instrument published missed approach to an altitude. Well, there was, there was a whole big thing about that. Remember? Yeah. Right? But I mean, if you're cleared a visual approach, you're not, now you're not on an instrument approach proce- uh, procedure anymore. Right, but that there was, is no, there is no missed approach procedure anymore. Exactly. But there was a whole big thing that, that that's what, a certain airline that we know about was doing and that actually came out. And that's why we are now this airline that we know about uh, is <laughs> teaching specifically. Yeah. Specifically teaching that if you are cleared for a visual approach, you now put the visual miss approach, which is 15 for turbojet aircraft, 1500 AFE, right? How how long how long forever in Atlanta did if we were, yeah you know, but you know what to- practically speaking it doesn't really matter because if you tell somebody you're going you're going around um, uh, and when you're on a visual approach they're going to immediately tell you fly this heading in this altitude in fact the tower controllers when I did the tower tour in Atlanta said I don't care okay. what <laughs> what the missed approach procedure says oh. or what your procedures are for you know, visual conditions. Uh, if you're on this runway or this runway, it's going to be 4,000 feet. If you're on this runway, it's going to be 3,500 feet. That's what's going to happen. That's what we're going to give you. So, that's Atlanta, though. I know. But it's just, again, that, <clears throat> that, I think we're getting, into, we're getting into a, uh, a rabbit hole here. That, that oh, yeah. is probably oh, yeah, unnecessary. You're, right. you're, you're um, absolutely right. But um, anyway, visual approaches, most of the 99.9% of the time is just Use your eyeballs, fly the airplane to the runway, use the instrument approaches as a backup to make sure you're not doing something stupid. Use the visual references, the PAPI systems, the VASI systems, or whatever, the visual approach um, guidance. If you or have three it. to one, or just yeah, use the three, three to one. one. But, uh, and then so, or, or just crash. Well. Oh, thank you. No, we're not Asian. Okay. Um, yes. 
All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. Uh, yeah, but I understand his, his confusion. It confused me. And actually, it's one thing you guys on the show helped me to resolve was this problem of being given a visual approach, but it wasn't actually a visual approach. It was an instrument approach, and I'm still IFR, but I just need visual cues in order to complete it because uh, there, there are certain elements of it that need to be performed right. visually. I need to see the airfield or I need to see an aircraft in order to yes. complete the approach. And good, and once, and you, once I got that on board, yeah. I was completely And happy. you made a good point also. You just made a great point because Dana said something that wasn't actually – a visual approach is not a VFR procedure. It's an IFR procedure in visual conditions. Yeah. That, that's how I understand it now. Yeah. And I, I'm completely happy with that. Now, the only way it's going to be a visual proced- a VFR procedure is if you cancel your IFR clearance. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, so and visual approaches speak. are IFR approaches. <laughs> it's just you're not using, you know, you're using all a lot of outside references for everything. Ah, well, we can, well, we can spend yeah, hours on this. You, you, have, you have to maintain visual. Yes, clearance. but it's not. Uh, but see, we kind of sometimes use these terms that uh, – that, that transition from one to another, but it's not quite accurate all the time because a VFR means something specific, visual flight rules. And we're not, we're not using visual flight rules doing a visual approach. We're still on an instrument approach. Um, yeah, but if you popped into a cloud, you're no longer on a visual flight. Well, that's true. You, you have to maintain certain requirements. You know, exactly. there's certain things so, you have to are required to do if you're going to accept a, a visual approach, at least you're correct. To. Actually, yeah. Opposing Bases did a quite a good podcast on this. And uh, I still don't understand it, but, you know, they, they helped me out a lot as well. Yeah, me too. Uh, Pilot Pip. Now, I hope he's being facetious here. In the sim today, for a bit of fun, we did some straight-in visual approaches from 15 miles and 36,000 feet. <laughs> he said, listen to this. It works out quite well at 20,000 feet per minute and 320 knots. Good job. So well, good job he's flying a lemon. <laughs> so, uh Kids, don't try this at home. Oh, is that me? Oh, it's your call. I forgot to. Uh, maybe they're they're telling me it's to stop you. stop podcast stop podcasting <laughs> stop podcasting <laughs> and podcasting, which is something entirely different. I forgot to turn the ringer off. Actually, I don't remember when I ever turned it back on. <laughs> I'm surprised anybody's even calling you. They're not calling me. They only call Linda here. <laughs> That's why I usually uh, have it off. Linda's got it. Thank yep. you, Linda. She she finally picked it up. Thanks, hon. Okay. <laughs> How much time do we have left in this stinking show? <laughs> Ten minutes. <laughs> Ten minutes. Steph, it's all, back. It's, it's all falling apart. Jeff's losing it. <laughs> Twelve minutes if he can't. Well, what time are you up this morning, Jeff? Uh, like 4.30. Yeah, uh, let's not play that game because no. I'll beat you guys oh, down. No. It's not even That's fair, true. is it? That is true. <laughs> Let's do this one. Ty wrote in with some really nice feedback. And especially for Captain Nick. Uh, He says, message for Captain Nick. (laughs) I'm going to read it and then he's going to answer it. I fly a Jetstream 31 slash 32 for a part 135 regional airline based in uh, Nashville, BNA. We will be retiring the Jetstream from our company in March of this year and replacing them with Embraer regional jets. Do you have any knowledge of jet streams still in operation in the UK? Is it true that the Royal military had jet streams in operation until year 2013? 
And also, do you have any jet stream time, Captain Nick? If so, what is your opinion of it? Just curious. Thank you. <laughs> Things falling apart. <laughs> Just curious because it was built in the UK by British Aerospace and is the most unstable aircraft I've ever flown. <laughs> it took me 1,500 hours to become comfortable with the way oh it flies. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, Ty's a little bit slow, apparently. And yeah. um, glad to see – I'm just kidding, Ty. Uh, and glad to see it retired. I also feel that I'm fortunate to have flown it before – that sounds like a little bit of disparity there. I'm yeah. – uh, because they're gone, and it has made me a better pilot, both stick and rudder and instrument. Thanks for your input. I enjoy the podcast. And this is Ty. From Nashville. So, Nick. <laughs> what a great piece of feedback, Todd. <laughs> yeah, I hated it, but I'm glad I flew it. Yeah, exactly right. That's, <laughs> and, and we, we call it uh, stick rudder and ailerons, but uh, obviously for you, that wasn't a problem. Um, I, I, I'm delighted you had a dreadful time in it. It was a bit of a nightmare airplane. <laughs> he's, dread, he's, he's delighted that you had a yeah, dreadful time. Yeah, exactly. And I was very glad never to have to fly it because uh, for us it was uh, a trainer that we used if you are progressing to multi-engine transport um, flying. So uh, since I headed to the fast jet world and flew fighters, that wasn't uh, a uh, progression I had to make. But however, uh, I have a very good friend of mine uh, who uh, is a, Hercules pilot and used to be and now flies uh, in my outfit and I did uh, email him because I knew he probably would have done trading on the jet stream and I asked him a bit about it so uh, I, I spoke to Bob, Bob Eilert and uh, he said hi Nick good to hear from you it was a long long time ago <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I flew the predecessor to the 31. I only have about 50 hours on it. Well, he was lucky to survive that, I think. So definitely not an expert. But I do remember that as my first experience of asymmetric flying, it was hard work. Stood me in good stead for the rest of my career on Herks. And, of course, more recently, on the Airbus family. The highlight of the course which was uh, the initial multi-engine training in the Royal Air Force. Well, we don't really call it the Royal Military. Uh, We have the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, and the Army. They don't get royal, but everyone knows they are. Um, So, uh, (laughs) here we go. The highlight of my course, which was initial multi-engine training in the RAF, was a flight to Berlin before the wall came down along the famous Berlin corridors and with the opportunity to visit East Berlin via Checkpoint Charlie in number one uniform, that is our smartest of all uniforms. Uh, Probably not much use to your uh, friend Ty, but the memories are, and the memories are a little hazy, I'm afraid. Well, thank you very much, Bob. That's about all I know about the jet stream, I'm afraid, Ty. Um, I'm I guess we're all a bit pleased it's gone, uh, but I often think that we look back at airplanes that were hard to fly and realize that they helped us develop skills that we may use one day in life, and those airplanes that are hard to fly made us better pilots. So I hope it has a small place in your heart. Excellent. Hey, I have a question. So 
first of all, I think the Jetstream 31 is a good looking airplane. I've never flown it myself. Uh, but I have a question about um, your friend's response about asymmetric flying. What did he mean by that? It, does it mean that the both engines are spinning the same direction instead of counter? No, no, he'll mean the engine out fly. You know? Oh, okay. When, when we, uh, you know, uh, a fighter, you know, has the two engines too close to the th- the center line yeah. to call it asymmetric. Uh, in oh, the UK, uh, okay. when you're asymmetric, you're single engine, but it has to be far enough out in the oh, wings yeah. to actually produce an asymmetric force. Not center line thrust, but. No, exactly okay. right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I, I wasn't sure exactly what he meant by that. Uh, but it sounds to me, <laughs> based on the little bit of um, information we have about this airplane, that it was not the most stable airplane to fly. No, it, it sounds took a like, lot of skill to fly it well. <laughs> it sounds like a cl- classic uh, British airplane built by committee. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a very unstable aircraft. I know several people have flown it. Have you have you had any time in it? I do not. I yeah. do not. But I have several friends that flew that airplane. That was they're still alive. well done i do remember them saying that at least the 31 i I think some of them had autopilots but i think most of the people i know who flew the 31 said that uh it really you know improved your flying skills because there was no autopilot and so you were always flying it oh wow yeah (laughs) always and actually i think uh chad freeman Mm -hmm. down in florida i think that's what he's been flying if i remember correctly he's been flying the jet stream Chad, if, if you're listening still, uh, send us some feedback about the jet stream. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that's what Chad, Chad's been flying. And then uh, a very similar aircraft to that as well, the jet stream, is the Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi is a very difficult airplane. Yeah, I heard very that, much that, like that is a, uh, a, high, a high-performance machine that doesn't have ailerons and uses spoilers for roll control, yeah. and it can be really? kind of a hand, yeah, can be hand, a handful to uh, to fly yeah. yeah i just looked back on on chad in the conversation i've had with him yeah he's flying the, the 31 and 32 okay 3100 3, oh, so we have somebody that is in our community that has some experience with it um, well perhaps so. they'll send in some feedback yeah. please chad yeah. please we haven't chad. heard from you in a while we'd like to hear what's going on with your life yeah i right. will uh well he he just up quite literally about 15 minutes ago updated me everything that's going on in his life. Oh, good. So well, he then he's to. still there. Then okay, great. Maybe he'll be he listening. And if not, uh, make sure that you tell him that we were just talking about him and his airplane. I will. Great. Absolutely share. Well, you know what? I'm sad because we have some great feedback from Nick Camacho, Camacho, uh, who is in the chat room with us right now. And he sent in some audio feedback, and uh, but it's a little bit too long for us to play to, on today's show because we have, you know, we're getting close to the end of the show, and uh, we don't want to keep you guys too long. So we're going to move that to the next um, show folder, and we'll definitely get that. One of the first things that we'll do is your feedback, Nick. Uh, also have uh, Robert um, with uh, some feedback regarding the A220. Uh, a.k.a. the Bombardier C-Series. Uh, Simon has a question about ILS landings. And then there was a, a, a video that was covered quite a bit on many of the social media networks. Um, the, the storm that came through with a lot of strong crosswinds um, and the video of a, a British Airways um, Dreamliner coming boing, in for landing boing, a boing, yeah. boing. in this case yes <laughs> it was a boing <laughs> and they did a go around so we'll talk about that 
Um, again, you know, the typical journalistic hyping of, you know, they did the right thing. They did a good job. Took it around. Storm Eric. Thank you, Liz. And um, we'll have all that and more. Maybe your feedback if you want to send some to us at feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Remember, we have this website that's awesome, airlinepilotguy.com. And we also have apps that you can get for your iOS device and your Android device. And still haven't heard what's going on with the iOS version of the new of the new version for iOS, but uh, I believe the Android version is new out there and it has the uh, APG community calendar on it. And if that's not right, please let me know. And uh, let's see, we're also on social media. So, Captain Nick, can you tell us about social media? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you can find us on Twitter if you uh, stick the handle at APG Crew. And uh, we, most of us, keep an eye on that and uh, we'll respond. On Facebook, uh, you'll find uh, Liz and myself and occasionally Jeff because he's, uh, he's uh, recently taken a new interest in Facebook. Because I heard people uh, were talking about me uh, behind in a bad back. way, yes, behind my back. <laughs> so I have to go look at that now. <laughs> and on Facebook, it's the usual Facebook preamble with uh, Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, and uh, you'll find our page there. And uh, we've all got personal uh, Facebook accounts as well, so you can find us yep. on that. And uh, that, that works pretty well. They do. And we also have this thing called Slack, which this genius Hillel came up with, and he's the one that manages manages it, manages it. There we go. We'll try that again. Take three. Manages it. <laughs> he's here to tell us all about it. APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo 1. And see you in Slack. And a big shout-out to our awesome producer, Liz Piper in Toronto. Thank you so much, Liz, for everything you do to help us with the show. You are awesome. We couldn't do it without you. And... To all of you, thanks for listening to the show, downloading it, reviewing it, and all that stuff. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great day. See you next time. Good day.